Hi folks, this is Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 16th, 2014. This is episode 1281 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you today, a long one for you today. I spent over two hours on the phone with John Pugliano yesterday discussing 10 trends for 2014. I think this will be uh, a very eye-opening episode, and I'm going to tell you there's some parts of it you're not going to like, uh, just because you're not going to like what it means. There's some parts of it that are going to be pretty optimistic that you might really like, and there's a few people that might be really pissed off at me by the time this is over with. But when I'm analyzing trends, I'm not analyzing feelings. So if you end up being one of those people, I'm sorry, I'm just getting giving you my honest opinion like I always do. Anyway, before I get John on here for you, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by supporting the show and helping us be here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backyard Food Production, the awesome Marjorie Wildcraft who has her homestead down there somewhere south sort of Austin. This is as specific as she wants to be, and even though I know where it is, that's as specific as I will be on her behalf. Anyway, she is this amazing system that she's put together where they provide themselves a tremendous amount of food. And even though they have a fairly large acreage, what they're doing is really only about an acre is where the majority of what they do is. This system that she has put together can be scaled up or down. You need to check it out. You can uh, find her at BackyardFoodProduction.com. But the best thing to do would be go to the SurvivalPodcast.com and click on our link in today's show notes or her banner in the uh, right-hand margin because there's a special deal not just for MSB members but for all of the TSP audience with Marjorie if you use the links on my site. And if you are an MSB member, you get an even better deal. So check it out. Next up today, Survival Gear Bags. Survival Gear Bags was born right out of the Survival Podcast community. Uh, when Kelly John Doe joined our forum way, way back in the beginning, I think his forum member number is a double-digit number to tell you how, how long ago that was. Um, and he was in the fulfillment business, so he thought, well, maybe I can use some of my connections, put together some group buys, and do some stuff for folks on the forum. So he did that and thought, wait a minute, maybe I could actually create a business. So he created Survival Gear Bags, and that's a business now that his whole family works in, and it was born right out of the TSP community. They've got great gear and great bags to put your gear in. So check them out today, survivalgearbags.com. And remember, they do a discount and free shipping for members of the Support Brigade. Uh, on the Support Brigade today, I want to mention... Uh, Real quick, one of our supporters of the Support Brigade that's not a sponsor, MERS-Radio.com, M-U-R-S-Radio.com. They do a 5% discount on all of their orders uh, in their store. And the MERS radios allow you to have a secondary means of communication, and they allow you to combine something like motion detectors with your comm source, so they can be a security mechanism as well. They actually used to be a sponsor, but as we grew, we uh, became just a little bit too expensive for... Uh, for Rob over there to do that, but he's remained a strong supporter of the show by being a member of the MSB. Uh, on that note, consider joining the MSB. You'll get discounts to uh, to both of our sponsors today, and you'll also get a discount to MERS Radio and about 40 other vendors that offer you discounts on things you're buying anyway. You'll get over $200 worth of free ebooks, and you'll help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. To learn more, go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members or the MSB banner in one of the right-hand margins. 
Uh, also, Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps Active Duty or Prior Service, you get a discount to thank you for your service if you do join the Member Support Brigade. I also extend that discount to first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. The way to get that discount, send me an email, put service discount in the subject line, email it to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. The the is very important. I do not own survivalpodcast.com. Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. And I will get back to you with a discount code. You got to do that before, not after you join. Uh, with that, we've got everything wrapped up there. I do want to point something out to you guys, especially you guys that, you know, maybe you're on your smartphone, you're pulling up the website to read stuff and all, and you're typing the survivalpodcast.com. You're like, why is this guy's domain name so long? Well, There's marketing reasons for it, but it does suck to type in. So I have a little bitty domain you can use, and it just will redirect you to the site. And it's a lot less to type into your phone or even your, pad, your iPad or whatever when you're not on a full computer. In fact, even on a full computer, it's a good shortcut. It is tspc.co, not com.co, tspc.co. It'll flip you right over there. You're only typing in, what, six letters and a period. So uh, that'll that'll help you. That's a little tip I forget to mention once in a while. Those of you on Androids, we have an Android app. Uh, go to the survivalpodcast.com. You can download it. iPhone app. We do not have an iPhone app um, for a variety of reasons. But we do have an Android app available for you guys at the survivalpodcast.com or tspc.co. Uh, with that, let's get into the uh, history segment real quick. This is 1281. 1281, the kamikaze fend off the Mongols round two. Ding, ding, ding. Remember, we already had an invasion of Japan. Uh, the samurais uh, mounted a defense, but in the end, what happened was the Mongols got you know swamped by a storm, the kamikaze, the design, divine wind. The Japanese took this seriously. They built a wall, and then here's what happens next. The, the Mongols come back. 4,400 Mongol ships launched a second attempt to invade Japan in two waves. The first Mongol force is stalled at Hakata Bay, where the samurai have built a 25 miles long wall. The samurai board the Mongol ships in small boats at night and set them on fire. That'll learn your ass. Somebody sets your ship on fire, especially back in the 1200s uh, when your ship was all made of wood. Uh, it's probably pretty effective. On August 12th, the uh, main Mongol force arrives, but a typhoon called the Kamikaze Divine Wind hits the Mongols on August 15th. A very few survived to report to Kublai Khan. Samurai send the bill of the Shogun, but the cupboard is bare. Hmm. So let's see what Alex's take on uh, on the Mongol invasion is. The aftermath following the samurai victory would be laughable if it hadn't led to another war. Defending Japan was expensive, so the samurai sent the Kam Kamakura Shogun leadership a bill, and the priests added their charge for successful prayers for the Kamikaze. The divine winds. Instead of payment, they received a scroll listing their accomplishments. Unable to eat the scroll, dis scroll uh, dissatisfaction grew amongst the samurai, eventually leading to a 15-year war and the restoration of imperial power to the emperor uh, Go Dago in uh, 1333, which would lead to a very long period of imperialism in Japan. A very, very long period. Uh, through the Ido period and all the way up until the modern age, it would stay that way. Uh, so Japan's somewhat, sort of, kind of, a little bit democratic experiment 
gone wrong because somebody couldn't pay the freaking bill to the soldiers that saved the city from, or saved the, the country from certain damnation. Because when the Mongols took you over, they didn't just like set up shop and run elections, guys. They, uh, They killed everybody, uh, and, and that's part of what made them feared. Uh, another thing that happened in 1281, the Pope stabs Byzantine uh, in the back, and the Muslims win. After years of negotiating for the unification between the Church of Rome and the Greek Church, Pope Martin IV throws it all away by excommunicating the Emperor of Byzantine, Mike, uh, Michael VIII of Palilagos. The one Greek guy on the planet who was on the Pope's side, Charles I of Sicily, prepares for his second major attack on the Byzantine capital of Constantinople. But while the emperor is looking west, Muslim forces are consolidating their forces in the east. In time, the Muslims will take over a week in Constantinople and rename the city Istanbul, but not without a fight. Istanbul not, might not exist today if the Greek emperor had been free to attack those Muslim forces while they were still manageable, but it was not to be. Um, Alex's take on that, Alex is the guy that does this for me, um, excommunicating the emperor was a big mistake. This is why you don't place puppet people in power, as King Charles I did with Martin IV. They start acting like they are actually in charge. King Charles of Sicily was not the sole reason for the election of Pope Martin IV, Uh, Pope Nicholas III was not well-loved, but Martin IV essentially canceled all contracts of the emperor, creating chaos in Vienna and Genoa, who were trading with Constantinople. And King Charles I of Sicily was in charge of a bunch of people on the island of Sicily who were largely Greek. What could go wrong with alienating the Greek emperor of Byzantine? Just wait. Um, I, I think that There's one more piece that Alex has here that really shows how big a deal this is. Like, so a pope pissed off an emperor, and uh, what does this all mean? Um, the, Ottoman, Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire is coming, but not yet. With the destruction of the Byzantine Empire, the Muslim leadership is consolidating. Osman I is considered brilliant, and at the age of 23 becomes the leader of Kaya Khan and Sogut. This is the first step in his march to establish what will be called the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire will last until World War I, when various parts will break away into the countries we know today, including Libya, the Balkans, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq. This is what Alex says. The breakup of the Ottoman Empire was complicated. The Balkans were always in trouble, and the English world Balk referred to Uh, related to referring to a ridge or mountain or barrier. barrier. By World War I, the empire was already falling apart, leading to a class, uh, the classic science fiction writer A.E. Van Vogt in the 1930s to theorize that civilizations ran in predictable cycles, and the Ottomans were the example of the fella state, the last stages, referring to an Arab peasantry. Um, I think that you got to look at what you're really talking about here. Um, When you really look at this, and if you know the history of World War One, the whole to the whole concept in modern times of a holy war, a fatwa by Muslims, was actually generated by British and U.S. intelligence attempting to swing uh, Arabic forces to the side of the Allies in World War One. Not to mention this breakup. And the, the expansion of the Ottoman Empire into these areas all really set the stage for a lot of the modern problems that we have. And it also set the stage to make World War I as big and bloody as it was. 
You know, I mentioned the Archduke Ferdinand in warfare recently, but guys, there was a lot more than that. And that's why something that relatively insignificant, the death of one person, led to the death of tens of millions. And if you look all the way up into, like, the, I guess you'd call it the Third Balkan Wars, Kosovo, et cetera, that happened, you know, less than 20 years ago, I guess now. Um, it's all still connected to all these tensions. What we're trying to get when we look at the lens of history is not just learning from the mistakes of the past so we don't repeat them, and not just what I always say, since somebody did something stupid in the past, they'll probably do it again, understanding how long the consequences of certain things can last. Because the truth is, we're still to this day very much dealing with the consequences of these things that happened all the way back in 1281. With that, I do have the uh, history segment wrapped up, and I'm ready to bring on our special guest, Mr. Jean Pugliano, uh, to talk about 10 emerging trends in 2014. And with that, hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, thanks. It's always great to be on the show. Hey, John, um, we've got you on to talk about investing, and actually, really, what we have on is to talk about financial trends and overall trends in 2014. You've got a great outline here for us, but you are kind of a financial uh, investment advisor type of guy. Uh, I know that's something that's kind of new for you as far as doing it on your own in your own business, and you have, but you have a background from there. But could you talk to people that maybe haven't heard you on the air before about, you know, how did you end up doing what you do today? Yeah, well, I, uh, I did. I started my firm last year, so I've been doing this for about a year now, um, and I'm an independent financial advisor. Uh, I wanted to be set up where I could uh, be unaffiliated, unaffiliated with anybody else, and so it took me a number of years to get to that point in my life. Um, but I did. I started trying to build a business about 15 years ago where I, I kept my day job. I had a large family and a lot of kids to feed, so I just couldn't, uh, you know, I call myself a late-blooming entrepreneur because it, it took me a long time to actually start my own business, but I, I built it up for a long time. So in my spare time, I went after my passion, which was investing, and I built my experience and my knowledge up in that, built my net worth up, and got to the point where four or five years ago I was able to um, you know, basically move, move from the East Coast to, to get myself out in the Rocky Mountains. I live in Utah now and um, put, the, put the things in, in line to start my business. Uh, as far as prepping, I... Um, You know, it came to that too. Is early on in my life, I had great parents that were, uh, you know, people that, that lived their life responsibly and tried to be prepared and, and never bought things that they couldn't afford. And I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, which were, um, you know, people that came out of uh, the Depression, people that had gardens. They, they, uh, my, my Italian grandfather did everything. Right, he was a, he was a, one of those kind of guys that he was an organic gardener. He He grew his own vegetables. He made his own wine. He just did everything. He was a, he was a survivor of um, World War One. Uh, prison. He's a prisoner of war of World War One. The uh, Germans uh, had uh, captured him when he was in the Italian army, and um, he survived that. Almost starved to death. And just as a kid, hearing his stories, hearing my other grandfather's stories about um, coal mine. He was a coal miner, so coal mine collapses and first aid, and how they how they responded to people in those situations. It just always always fascinated me, and um, I, I tried to hone those skills over the years and uh, really didn't realize I was a prepper until I discovered your podcast about three years ago. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that feel that way because the only reason that we call ourselves preppers is because everybody stopped being prepared. It's, it's not that we're unique or different. It's that everybody else just 
for some reason, decided that somebody else was responsible for everything in their lives. Um, we, I don't consider us as a group, as preppers, modern survivalists, whatever you want to call us, as being the ones who've changed. We've just simply remained constant uh, while others have just let personal responsibility go away. I was saying last week when I was talking about some of you know, my rules for how I live my life from, as a modern survivalist that a lot of this stuff is just called being a freaking adult. And that the fact that, you know, it's necessary in America today to wake people up to being an adult is, is sad. And there's plenty of us that are doing this. It's just like the whole prepper movement has given a way for people to identify with each other and share ideas. But many people that are, you know, you call yourselves preppers today or survivalists today really just kind of took on that label because they were already that way and they just realized, oh, this is, this is how we identify ourselves now. Uh, Whereas, you know, in 1950, it was called being a grown-ass man. Exactly. It was, it was a way of life, and it was responsible. You you were someone that had character, and that's that's how you responsibly lived your life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are talking about trends uh, in 2014, but with modern survivalism, what we try to remind people of is that, you know, the, the disaster that we, we are preparing for happens to people every day, that there's things that just totally screw up the life of an individual on a daily basis that we don't think of as disasters because unless it's us, it doesn't affect us. And you put together a list of statistics based on per 100,000 people. Uh, we're not quite at 100,000 yet. We, we've hit in the mid-90s in the last week with downloads per day. So we're damn close to 100,000 listeners now. So that's a pretty applicable number. Do you want to maybe go through this a little bit and tell people out of the 100,000 people that listen to this show by, let's say, next month, um, how many of them will experience certain things just based on statistics? Yeah, sure. And, and in fact, uh, I want to emphasize what you said, Jack. We're going to talk about trends, but what we're going to talk about right now isn't a trend. These are just hard statistics. These are things that are going to happen. Right? They're, they're, not, they're not a speculation. They're not a forecast. There are things that, that happened yesterday, and they're going to happen today. And if you think about the TSP listening family, 650 of them, uh, let's just call them households, 650 will be diagnosed with cancer. There will be 650 listeners that might be di di diagnosed with cancer. It's a large number, and that's a, a, an amazing number. When you, when you think about just within the listening audience of the people that we, we, you know, we talk to on, on Zello and, and friends that we have from the show, 650 people are going to be diagnosed with cancer this year. 229 people will have their vehicle stolen from this audience. 200 people will suffer a heart attack. 60 people will have a stroke. 27 women will be raped. 18 people will become infected with the HIV virus. 11 people will commit suicide, and 5 people will be murdered. That's, uh, that's some pretty chilling statistics when you think about it. That's what's happening day in and day out in our lives, and to me, that's why it's so important to be prepared, not necessarily be you know, preparing for a coronal mass ejection or EMP or, uh, you know, attack from the North Koreans or something. But just to be prepared <laughs> for these, you know, these things that are going to happen every day in our lives. And through actuarial statistics, we know they're going to happen. And I see, and I don't sell insurance, right? I'm a, I'm a stock trading guy. I just yeah. want to know, you know, you need to be prepared for these things. That's what's happening in your life. Well, and see, I think that what we really people need to get driven home there is like, so we said 650 will be diagnosed with cancer. That will be in 2014. That's not out of the audience total forever. These are per year numbers. 
Uh, and it's it, it's pretty stark when you start thinking over 10 years, that means 50 people. Uh, and it's not a guarantee that 50 people out of this audience, but 50 people per 100,000 will be murdered. I mean, there are certain things that increase the risk. If you're dealing meth out of your basement, you have a better chance of being shot by a, you know an opposing drug dealer than if you, you don't. But these are stark numbers and stark realities. And if you start thinking about each household that listens to this show has extended family, um, has people that they care about, have people that they depend on and, and depend on them, th- then the numbers go exponentially up through those interrelationships of whether or not you'll actually be affected by this. Because... If if some person you never heard of in Sheboyganville, Iowa, gets cancer, you, if you hear about it, if you're a decent human being, you feel for them. But by tomorrow morning, you've forgotten about it, and you're on with other things in your life. If you were worried about every single human being that got cancer every day, you'd never get anything done. Even if it seems like the compassionate thing to do, you can't function that way. But if your brother or your father or your son or your mother or your sister or your wife gets cancer – it does affect you. So the number of people affected is far greater than the stark numbers you just gave. That's right. Yep. When people start looking at their extended family and their local community, their friends and neighbors, uh, these numbers are, are large, and, and that's why we need to be prepared to, to help our own families as well as to help people in our community. Well, let's get into some of your trends. Um, you're doing a little bit of Gerald Salenti here, I think, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, your first trend, and this is kind of in reverse or top trends, like a top ten list starting at number ten and counting down, uh, that you have for me here is a disregard for government and rule of law. Yes, and uh, and by the way, Jack, we did, just for the listeners, you know, we did start these trends up uh, talking about them uh, two months ago. So so we're, we're somewhat into these trends. I think as we go through these, we'll see that some of them are, are coming out. And these are just trends. These are just things I see as I deal in, in, in watching the news every day and trading stocks. I see... Things that happen, I look for anomalies, and that's how I try and make my decisions. So, as we talk about these, we're not we're not talking about financial trends, telling people to invest in a particular stock. We're just looking at things that are happening that I think are going to be really highlights through the year. People should use that as part of their situational awareness, and you know, adjust their lives accordingly. Um, so, disregard for government and rule of law. Okay, obviously that's a long-term trend. We've seen that for many years, but but it's really been picking up in recent years. Fun. Um, uh, so late last year, we saw the Million Vet March on Washington where you, uh, the government shut down. They, they closed down the veterans' memorials, and that was a government just doing it out of spite. You know, there was no reason they had to close down these open the memorials on the open mall. Um, no reason at all. You even had volunteers that were going to go in there and, and make sure there was uh, no damage done and things. And So it was spite out of the government, and people knew that. And so you had regular, everyday people. Some of these were old, old World War II survivors. Some of them were just family members. Some people weren't even veterans at all. They were just angry that the government did something like that. And so they took to the street. And normally... When things like that happen, we, we see it on the left. It tends to be something the more the Democratic Party does. Um, it's, it's obviously been a tool of the left to have boycotts and things like that. But more and more, and I think you're going to see it, especially this year, you're going to see more of the civil disobedience, more of regular, everyday, middle-class Americans just getting fed up. And, you know, they have a lot to be fed up over. We, 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 we know the IRS targets people, but, I mean, we actually have documentation of that that came out last year where they – they sent the IRS to, to target people in the Tea Party and things. Um, government spying, obviously, since Snowden has had his revelations. I mean, we all knew what was going on anyways, but now the everyday middle-class American is learning about these things, and they're angry, and, and they're, um, 
you know, we become a whisper society where you, you, because of politically correct speech and censoring of things, you can't say maybe what's on your mind for fear of reparation or for fear, you know, the, the wrong person's going to find out. And um, so you're going to see things like, uh, not, this will not only be people taken to the street and protesting, but you're going to see more people encrypt, encrypting their, uh, their emails, being more, more cautious about their, um, you know, how they handle their conversations to make sure they're really private. And, um, you know, I think the middle class in America has really learned from uh, what they're seeing happening with the illegal immigrants. And, uh, you know, the mantra for, for many years now has been, well, you can't, you can't deport 12 million people. You just can't send 12 million people back for disobeying the law. And I think that's ingrained in people's mind. Uh, the, the, the trend they're starting to say, well, like, well, that applies to us, too. If there's like 50 million of us saying, Absolutely. we don't want to do this anymore. If you can't get rid of 12 million people who are clearly here illegally under current law, whether you agree with I have a lot of problems with current law and the way it's set up. But whether you agree with it or not, they're clearly here illegally. They're clearly violating federal law. And the federal government's response is, even if we want to, we can't, there's too many, we can't do it. Well, if you can't do it with 12 million, you sure as hell ain't going to do it with 50. That's right. And, and 50 million people just say, hey, my, my Second Amendment right is being violated. Um, you know, and, and 50 million of us are going to open carry, or 50 million of us are going to have 30-round clip magazines, or you know, 50 million of us are going to do this as a part of our free speech, or 50 million of us are, are fed up with these marijuana laws. There's strength in numbers, and people are starting to realize that. Um, they're, they're seeing this, the strength of the underground economy, um, things like Bitcoin, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later on as well. But I, so I think you're going to see more civil disobedience. And, you know, from an investing standpoint, people can think about that. Hey, maybe, maybe I should be investing in, uh, you know, a company that deals with encryption software or, or uh, you know, Internet, uh, internet uh, security type things. You know, again, those, currently that's nothing I'm invested in, but I do look at those markets, and I think people need to look at their lives that way. How, how do I take care of this in my personal life? And then how do I maybe try and make money or start a business that could uh, could go with these trends? You know, even simple things like the Hunger Games, uh, that, that whole movie to me is about civil disobedience. And I think uh, other than it's a good, you know, it's a good adventure story, people like it, the undertone of that is is that uh, people are fed up with their government, and I think that really rings, rings true to people, and that's why you're seeing so many uh, people go to the Hunger Games. Yeah, I'll, I'll add some stuff to that. I think, like, I've said that if you want to make some money, here's the product to develop. It would be a product that immediately takes your browser and encrypts it. And there's ways to do it with just Firefox, but basically like a software tool that does it. Um, and then have this little program that runs in the background and you just set it for a couple different keywords. And whenever you're not using your computer, it just does random searches for shit like pictures of kittens. Um, and the, the the issue there is that there's no doubt that with brute force, the NSA can decrypt anything. They can do it um, eventually. It takes six months to a year uh, per per you know individual unit that you're trying to decrypt, though. And if there were 20 million people with their computers randomly surfing for pictures of kittens and uh, wildflowers and stuff like that. And this thing just clicking, you know, once a minute on something and moving back and going over here, and it was all encrypted. What it would end up doing is all the encrypted data is like the most important. That's the most suspect data, and it would pretty much grind that to a halt uh, because they, it would overload the system. And it's actually not difficult to do if you get enough people on board with it, and it's less risky than you know trying to organize an open carry march. 
Because the problem with the open carry market is if you're going to do it, you better have you better have a million people. Because if you have like a couple hundred, they will take everybody to jail. That's right. There's no doubt about it. But this is something that could be built up slowly. I think that's a good idea uh, that I'd love to see somebody do. And I know people are going to write in and say you can already do it. I'm saying build and automate. The, the, the person that doesn't understand nothing about how it works can just install it and hit run. And if, if you do that, you start to bring it down. And with with there's like two sides of this, too, with people rebelling. One is like a civil disobedience. The other is, well, can we do it through the state apparatus? You know that NSA data center in Utah out by you, John? There's people right now working with the Utah state government trying to basically just tell the NSA, well, you've seized the property, basically. You, we can't throw you out, but you know what we can do? We can turn off the freaking water, and without a million gallons a day to cool everything, it'll burn up. Um, so there's a lot of pushback in these areas. Yeah, the whole the whole nullification movement uh, uh, is is strong, and you're right. I live I live probably as a crow flies, probably six miles from that NSA center, and that's a big that's a big item out here. Um, so people are pushing back, and that's that's what I want people to watch: situational awareness, watch these trends, um, and and see how they may relate to your life. Um, and and you're absolutely right. The government can come down on a hundred of us, whether it's Encryption or whether it's open carry, they can go after a hundred, but they can't go after a hundred million. So there's, we got to go. We got to. We have to just watch those trends and strengthen numbers and 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 learn from. Uh, we can't we can't deport twelve million illegal aliens. Um, the next trend you have is inflationary deflation. It makes me think of the seventies with what they called stagflation. Uh, is that kind of what you're talking about there, or a different take on the same type of thing? Well, yeah, a little different take on it. You know, in those days, we did we had we had we had uh, stagnation, but you had a lot of inflation. Today, we definitely have the government telling us there's no inflation. Now, all of us that buy food and clothes and things and pay for health care and education, we know there's tons of inflation. But um, I guess the way to say this is that there is the things that you buy every day are being inflated. So your food prices, those things, you see those going up constantly. However, a lot of the assets that you own are either stagnating or still continuing to deflate. And that, that's even home prices, as much as you see the home prices that have gone up in the last 12 months because of the quantitative easing that, that never ends, um, they still haven't gone up to their peak levels. And the only reason they're as high as they are is because, you know, interest rates are still at a 10, 10-year interest rate is still under 3%. It's not going to stay that way forever. And you're going you're gonna to see deflation on, on some of those harder assets if we get more to a market-based um, a market-based interest rate. So people need to people need to be. See, I talk to people every day that are confused about like gold and silver. They say, how come, you know, how come the Fed's doing all this pumping, but I'm not seeing my my gold and silver appreciator. I'm actually seeing it, it go down in price. And that's that whole inflationary deflationary thing. Currently, you know, gold, gold prices are deflating. That doesn't mean it's going to stay that way forever. Um, and and people need to need to watch this trend and know that there is inflation going on. But we also have this major period of deflation, which has come from, you know, offshore manufacturing, uh, you know, things not only being made in, uh, you know, for the last 20 years in China, but now they've gone over to Vietnam and other markets that continue to be, to be uh, lower priced. We're seeing lower priced um, energy, energy from, from fracking and horizontal drilling. Those are all adding to the deflationary pressures, as well as just the fact that we have a great oversupply of services and, and products. You can, you know, 20 years ago, you didn't have anywhere near the choices you have today, whether it be um, 
you know, elect- electronics or career options. I mean, the, the Internet, all those efficiencies, the fact that the baby boomers are all still employed and working, that's created a, a great deal of productivity in our economy. Uh, but at the same time, we've had the emerging markets come on and, and, and lower the price of things. And so we've seen an overall deflation because of those added products and services. Um, and, and then again, we don't we don't have the growth. We, the demographics are against us. We don't have as, as many we have as many children being born, but not not in terms of, of expansion and growth. We, there's there's a lot of children being born because there's still a lot of people, but the growth rate has drastically decreased, and that's gonna you're gonna see that be a deflationary bubble for for some time. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding too in the silver and gold market because people have very short term memories. And because of that, they often don't really remember the bigger picture. So people look at silver or gold and say, well, it's, it's, it's gone down. But, you know, the reality is if we go back 10 years, silver was trading at like $4, right? Uh, four to six bucks. And, and gold was trading at three to $400. And, and then you sit here today and you look at silver, you know, very stable in that $20 range, pinging around there for a long time now. And really having kind of a floor uh, hitting in you know eighteen bucks, and when it hits eighteen bucks, it gets popped right back up. Uh, gold hitting like a, about a twelve, eleven hundred fifty, twelve hundred fifty dollar floor. Where what I think people don't realize is there was that big spike in the price in the middle that was driven when everybody figured out what was going on, and a lot of the people that bought earlier took profits. And why the stock market looks good right now because of all this quantitative easing. The people that made the money in the metal market know that they can make greater short-term returns in the stock market, and you know when everybody decides to get back in, that's when they get out. And, and, and a lot of that does hide what people think of as common inflationary indicators, because silver went up, that means there's inflation. No, silver goes up because there's more demand for it. Inflation means how far does your money go? And one of the nastiest tricks that's been pulled on the American people by the, the government in modern times was the removal of food and freaking energy from the freaking inflation index. Right? They, they call it the CPI. I, I call it the CPY. Because if you're going to remove the two things that people actually spend the majority of their money on from the inflation index, you've completely lied about everything. Yeah, and they and they did that for exactly the reasons you're talking about, so they can keep pumping with quantitative easing. You know, the, the Federal Reserve talks about their dual mandate, which is to, uh, you know, stable supposedly stable money value. They want to keep things at, at around two percent inflation, which is insane too, uh, if you think about it on its on its elementary level. But but anyway, that's their mandate: keep keep inflation at two percent, and then keep what they consider full unemployment. They they gerrymandered that um, consumer price index so that inflation stayed below two so that they could keep pumping on that end. And you see just in the last month, they've gone back and, and uh, they've backtracked on their employment mandate. They're saying, hey, you know, even if we get below 6.5% unemployment, we may, we may keep, keep uh, quantitative easing going up beyond that. And we all know they've juggled with the employment numbers as well because the real, the real number is probably 11 or 12%. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 I think that Part of what's going on here, too, now is people are stopping the belief in these lies. Um, and this kind of tying into your next uh, trend to be watching in midterm elections is a lot of these young kids 
you know, they're in their mid twenties now that were 18, you know, and their first time they ever voted, 18, 19 years old, when Obama was elected the first time, and many of them showed up to vote the second time while they were still in the the non-reality that college is, are out trying to find jobs now, dealing with student loan debt, and thinking, where's all this freaking hope and change? Um, and, and, and they're seeing finally, yeah, things do cost more because mom and dad have said, I've done it all I can do for you now, Johnny. You're, you're going to have to go find a job and pay your own way. And as soon as that rubber starts to meet the road, they see that inflation. And I think that's going to move and, and have some impact on your next trend of the midterm elections. Yeah, the midterm elections are always something to watch for because they, they involve change and uncertainty. Generally, the administration that's holding the White House at that point loses uh, seats because um, a lot of it is because they've been you know two years two anywhere between two and six years into the disenchantment of their of their presidency as well as they're just not the um, they still have the momentum that they had during the presidential side of it. So the, the stock market doesn't like uncertainty. It doesn't like change. So that could that could be something people want to watch for this year, just just in general. But absolutely, I mean, the, all the youth that, that went out and voted um, on the last two times for President Obama, you may see them disenchanted as the uh, the, the problems with Obamacare continue to roll out. Everything from the uh, the website to when people are finding out how much it's actually costing them, they're finding out how much free health care really costs. Uh, you know, that's that's going to be a problem. Um, that could mean that the um, the uh, House of Representatives maintains their, their position. It could mean that the Senate gets taken over by the Republicans. It could tee things up for a Republican presidency in 2016. Uh, and again, no matter how you feel about that, whether you think it's going to be good or bad, the point is it's going to involve change. If there's a, re- a regime change, um, that will affect uncertainty in the stock market, and people want to want to watch that. Um, it's that whole boom and bust cycle, and it also goes along with uh, – watching what these politicians will do, because politicians on either side will do whatever they can to win. We all know all they want to do is get reelected. And so if they can do something that that has a boom for the economy, that they can cre- take credit for, you know, if the economy right now, the stock market even today is, is an all-time high, if President Obama can take credit for that during this midterm election by telling people that, you know, he's, he's done everything he can with QE to pump it up and he's all for for uh, horizontal drilling and fracking because of low energy prices. You know, he'll take credit for all that if he, if he can use it to his advantage. On the other hand, if he can crash the economy and blame it on the Republicans shutting down the government or wanting to, um, you know, whatever, cut, cut, uh, cut unemployment benefits for people that have been unemployed and collecting benefits for four years now, whatever he can do, he will do. And likewise, whatever whoever on the Republican side can do, they will do because they don't care about the life of the average American. They don't care if they lose money on their house. They don't care if they lose money in the stock market. They just care about getting reelected. Yeah, and, you know, what you have in your notes is that Obama will pull out all the stops because the only way he's going to get anything done in the next two years is to take back the House and the Senate. Uh, I have, in the way I put it in my life, I have moved beyond political solutions, specifically at the national level. I, I think that our, our, our nation is now run by two sides of, uh, of a mafia family. We call them Republicans and Democrats. And I, I don't see any solution there, but I do pay attention to what I think the public's going to do. And frankly, I think the Democrats are going to get their asses handed to them in the midterm elections. Um, and everybody will be like, yay, and then they'll say, well, we can't get it done because we don't have a president. And I think you have a very good shot 
at seeing the House, the Senate, and the presidency in the hands of Republicans in 2016. And I, I, and I think that then it's going to be, yeah, and I'm, I think you're going to have as much Republican disenfranchisement as you've had Democratic disenfranchisement, uh, when, you know, you don't get everything you were promised either. And I'll actually tell you, I think you're going to see Republican language moving more toward the Democrat side of things, becoming more and more liberal uh, on things like immigration reform. And I actually, I would tell you, don't be surprised if the current president gets something done on immigration reform with a Republican majority in both houses. Um, don't be shocked, because if they think they're safe, they'll do it, because they all want to. Oh, absolutely. Immigration is, is, is a, going to be a huge trend, and that, that's part of this midterm election. Uh, point that I wanted to bring up is there are, again, demographically, there are just too many Hispanics, specifically too many Mexicans, uh, not too many, I said that wrong. There are, they are a growing percent of the population. Not that it's too many. I don't care whether people are Chinese or, you know, what they are, but there are enough of them where we talked about earlier that strength in numbers. They are a demographic that has to be dealt with, and they have, um, well, I think what you're trying to say is too many of them to, for them to be ignored. To be ignored. There's too many, too, too many to be ignored, and so both both tri sides are going to pander to them, which isn't a bad thing if they pandered along the right, the, the 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 proper way, which would be, hey, we want prosperity for everybody. We want lower taxes for everybody. We want less government regulation for everybody. So you can you, know, you can come to this country, you can start a business, you can be successful. But that's not what we're going to see. We're going to see more, uh, you know, more promises to hand out welfare, more promises to give free education. It's going to be the pander to the Hispanics. And, and it, it not only does it to the, to the mass uh, group of Hispanics so that they'll vote for whichever party, again, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, but it's also tied into the crony capitalism because everybody from the, the high-tech Internet companies that want to bring over really smart people from India, you know, because they can't, they can't find the mathematicians or the computer scientists here, so they want to bring people over from India. So everywhere from, from a Google or an Apple down to the local chamber of commerce where a guy's running a, you know, a local restaurant, he wants to hire uh, cheaper labor, he wants to bring in illegals, they all, they all want this, and it's going to happen. So the so political parties are getting pressured from not only the large base of Hispanics, but also from the business owners that, that want lower-cost labor. Let me let me tell people out there something too that I, I think they may not believe, but it is true. When they say there are jobs in America with no Americans to fill them, it absolutely is true, and it's not just picking oranges. I'm so glad you brought up like high tech uh, industries and places like India. Uh, and when I was still in my you know regular job, so to speak, I was a partner in a company that did contract. Uh, placement and our, like our big clients were people like Ericsson, transmission systems. Uh, so you're talking about telecommunications switching gear and things like that. High end stuff. This is not picking oranges in, in Florida, right? And we often had to deal with visa issues because the only person we could find that could do the job was from India or from Pakistan or Greece or Germany. Um, because these were specialized positions and the client said they have to have a minimum of X years of experience with technology Y. Well, some of these technologies had been used in Europe for quite a while and were just being brought to the United States. So there was nobody in America with enough experience in that technology, and those that did have it were so highly in demand that they were always on contract. So 
even when we had American labor to fill a position with, we might already have that guy over on job A. Now we've got another opportunity to job B. And we, as, a, as a contract placement agency, we had two, two choices, not fill the position or get labor from outside of the country. And not filling the position made us no money. So what do you think we did? <laughs> you you uh, we fill the position, right? Fill the I position, mean, or, or even outsource it, right? You, you you couldn't get the guy in. You you could just go offshore and have him do the work through uh, through the internet or something. Well, must we we would get him in in on, in country because the type of work that we required usually was site had to have him in place. work. Yeah, so we had to get him in. So we do you know the, the we'd go through the visa process. Like it's been so many years now. Was it eight something B visa was the program we used to get them in. I uh, can't remember the exact, you know, what that's called now, but it's a something B visa that we would get these folks. And But we had to demonstrate to get that visa for them that we had made a reasonable attempt to find American labor to fill the position. And it was it got to be where we were very, very good at it. We'd go like, okay, well, here's the, the 27 people that we've, you know, talked to about it that are not qualified, that are available, and this is all that's left. And usually we'd have a competitor with either going after our contractor or another contractor also up. So where there was like multiple things coming in for it at the same time. So it worked and it got done. But then people say, well, you're not using American labor. Well, you know, you can say whatever you want, but in some of these positions, I don't have a choice. And it's not about money uh, other than I want the, I want the placement as a, as a contract agency it's about getting the job done, and the people with the experience. There's not enough of them in America, right? And, and, it, and it all goes back again to the to the, the restrictions of of government rules and regulations. They're arbitrary. They're designed to divide people, and they they impede business. Uh, the, the immigration laws definitely need reformed, um, but they need reformed in a, in a manner where. Um, so everybody, everybody that wants to and can get here probably should be able to come. I, I don't have a problem with that. We still we have a vast country. We have a huge economy. The problem is the welfare state. If people, Correct. If people were coming here, like my grandfather came here and living in a boxcar for five years until he could save enough money to get his family over here, it would be a whole different story than it is today because it's it's the it's the welfare benefits that are hurting the economy. Yes. Not not the immigrants. The immigrants are great people. We need them, we, and we need all of them. The, and the only reason. The, you know, the Hispanics are being used as a political football, and, and the reason is, is they're able to get here. They're able to cross the border and get here. That you yeah. So we're, we're letting them in, and then they use them as a political And we football. have a huge population of U.S. citizens that are Hispanic, so they're a great leverage tool for the politician. Uh, but you never hear the politicians talking about the high-tech jobs like I just did, because that actually leads to the bigger problem. They want a class warfare scenario. Exactly. And, and the Hispanic population is a great way to do that because that's the guy you see standing in the Home Depot parking lot waiting for a job. And when anybody bitches about that guy, I'm like, well, I didn't see you getting in his way. I didn't see you out there looking for a job. You know, I, so I, I don't, I don't know what the problem with that guy working is, but the welfare thing, is designed to create that class warfare agitation because it absolutely does. And when, and then you always hear the bleeding hearts come back. They don't want to be on welfare. They want to come here and work hard. Well, then you should have no problem banning them from all welfare programs, right? If you, if that's the case, then let's just and, – and then they're like, well, what about – how about we ban all of them? 
You know, and then, then you know, they don't want to have that conversation, obviously, because we need right. a safety net and whatever. And we've created an entire class of people now that are on these programs that live a pathetic, pathetic life. And, and then we are conditioned to, to, to hate them. They don't live a good, like people think, well, they're just living on the dole. They're living a miserable existence, a sub-poverty existence, and they've been put into a system where they actually fear doing anything because then they'll lose the little that they have. And it's all a political football. It's designed that way. It's totally designed that way. And, that, and, and because we have that welfare system is here supporting all these Americans at that subsistence level is exactly why you have that guy standing outside of Home Depot because there's demand for his labor and the Americans don't want to do it. Well, and it's detrimental to the family unit, too. I mean, Dorothy and I would never do this, but we were just discussing last night because her insurance went up so much because they're requiring her to have maternity coverage, right, where you never tell your wife's age, but let's just say we're past as a couple childbearing years, right? So I was like, you know, if we got divorced and you still lived here and we still lived together and everything stayed the same for us, since the income statement comes in on my side of the equation – I could even pay you a very low wage to make you at the poverty level, and you'd qualify for Obamacare. And hell, you wouldn't even need that because you'd get Medicaid and you'd get food stamps, and 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 you'd have no taxes at all. And you know, basically, you would be so much. We would both actually be better off financially. And I won't do that. But if you create that, people are smarter than we give them credit for. They'll figure that out, and a lot of people will do it. Yep, and, and that, that goes to where we talked about the civil dis- disobedience. You're going to see, I think you are going to see more of that. And, we, and, you know, we probably need that. We probably need more people that normally wouldn't do that thing to go in and bankrupt the system. Well, and I, I'll guarantee you, you're gonna, here's an industry to watch be formed. The non-state marriage industry. Like, people just have this need to feel married. Um, and any church can marry you, but a lot of them won't participate in this. And the reality is that anybody that wants to be a minister, and by the way, I think everybody should do this for a reason I'll give you in a second. You can go to the Universal Life Church online and be ordained as a minister in about three seconds. It's completely legal. It's been challenged and upheld in court that it does qualify as ordination. Um, and there will be some sort of marriage industry, I believe, that will come up that will be in the sight of God and all of your witnesses you're married, but according to the state you're not married. And I actually think there's... I'm not a biblical person, but if you are, I think there's a case to be made for that. Because when I enter to a marriage with my wife, like I did in the state of Texas, it's really technically a polygamous marriage. Because it's between me, my wife, the state of Texas, right? And then we're subject to all these things that we didn't necessarily bargain for. And this is the one that I think, when people really think about this, it should infuriate you. We made our marital contract in the state of Texas. For three years, we lived in the state of Pennsylvania. The marriage law is different in Pennsylvania than it is in Texas. So without our consent, our contract was altered by the state of Pennsylvania. Because if we had been divorced while living in Pennsylvania, we would have been subject to Pennsylvania's marital laws. So it really is a contract with a third party. And I think you'll see people that can't get their head around doing it from an ethics standpoint – Look for a market that will form that will basically be, we'll marry you, and you'll be married, but you will no longer be married to the state. Yeah, and you know, let me piggyback onto that and, and even go back to what we talked about before, about the civil disobedience and the law, lawlessness. I think, um, I think the freedom movement missed a great opportunity in these, in these 
past years when the Republican Party was really pushing for um, uh, the right to act marriage or whatever it's called, where it's, you know, they want a constitutional amendment saying marriage is between a man and a woman and, and, and all that, that pe- people, people didn't like the fact that the, the, of the, of the cultural ramifications of, of what was being, what they felt was being crammed down their, their, their uh, throats by either certain state governments or, or federal governments. But the, the right course of action that, that I think the freedom movement should have jumped on wasn't, wasn't allowing these people to say, well, hey, maybe I want to go over that Republican side then and, and, and try and put through an amendment that, you know, that says marriage between a man and a woman. What they should have said is, it's none of the, the government's business, period, what you're married to, whether it's between a man and a woman or, or same-sex. or The government should have nothing to do with it. And it all comes down, it's all about benefits. I mean, the government does have something to do with it because who qualifies for your Social Security benefits or, um, you know, uh, you know uh, some other kind of, of, of child benefit laws. But, but I think the freedom movement could have made some points by, by offering an alternative and saying, look, it's none of the state or the federal government's business who you married. If you love someone, you love that person. If you, if you have a particular religious belief that, we're, you, know, that you want to have this type of ceremony, that's your business. It has nothing to do with the government. Yeah, and I mean, churches already do this on their own. I mean, to a degree. For instance, one of the objections was, well, if they legalize gay marriage, then they'll force the churches to marry people. I'm like, you can't do it because it's already not done. And they're like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, the Catholic Church operates on a very different set of rules in regard to divorce than does just about every other church out there. And if one party has been divorced and wants to get married in the Catholic Church, it's a very long, painful process to basically get that church to declare that marriage annulled, and they won't do it. So churches already have this autonomy. If, if a church wants to say, we don't do same-sex marriages, that's fine. It's none of the state's business. And if, if a, you know, a same-sex couple is, is wanting that church to marry them, I'm like, why are you petitioning this? Why are you giving this church your, your you know, loyalty? Why, why wouldn't you go find someone that, that you want to be affiliated with and wants to be affiliated with you? And, and, and you, you can have all the moral debate you want to about it, but my view is it's nobody's business. But even if it is a morality issue, that doesn't mean that the state needs to be involved with it. The last thing I want is the state involved with most issues that are considered morality level issues. Exactly. Yep. And like I said, the state's involved in the marriage business though, because it, it all has to do with benefits and, and retirement plans and, and property. And it, property and it, uh, it but, gives them ability to police property that they otherwise would not have. Yes, and, it, because you could do everything else with a private contract. Correct. So like, like I say, if you and I had a business agreement, we would have a contract, and it would be very specific, and if we dissolve the partnership, it would be specific to the contract. And the state doesn't really get to say hill of beans over it unless there's a conflict between us. If we both agree to the contract, and we agree to the contract's stipulations on, on, on splitting, it stays that way. And if, if I move to Florida, my contract with you doesn't change. But in a marriage, the state can make a change to the contract without your consent. And, and they like to be able to change stuff without the consent of the electorate. Because that's, yeah. that's the best way to get shit done. Because otherwise, you've got to ask them first, and they might say no. And they like, and they like the art being able to arbitrate these laws and do things on a whim, because, that again, that gives them their power. That's how they get put in office, because they go to businesses or they go to constituencies and say, get us elected, and we'll change this. We'll ram it down people's throat. And that gets back to this whole midterm election. Watch for that confusion if... If the House remains Republican, if the Senate goes over 
to Republicans, that could definitely create some changes. If, on the other hand, the other way too, if if the uh, Democrats can take over the House, that'll give President Obama, uh, you know, pretty much free range for for his last two years, um, so he can get his things done. So just look for them. Just tell people look for the change and play it one way or the other. I mean, you you need yeah. to, these events are going to happen one way or the other. You need to figure out how to profit from them because you're not going to they're out of your they're out of your control. So just watch for them. Watch for the Tea Party too, because as you said, if the Republicans do. Um, if they can take over both houses and then maybe even take over in, in 2016, there will be discontent with them. So watch the Tea Party. Watch uh, watch these. Yeah, the Tea Party's not happy with the Republicans. I'll just put it to you that way. They, they The Tea Party keeps getting synonymously linked with Republicans, and while the Tea Party candidates are running on the Republican side, they are pretty far away from mainstream Republican Party tactics. Um, they're They're... You know what I'd like to see is a freaking Tea Party that actually included Democrats. I, I personally think the Tea Party died a, a couple months after it was created. Uh, when I went to one of the first Tea Party rallies and got a, 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 a sermon from a minister on the sin of sodomy, um, I, I stood there flabbergasted, going, "I thought we were pissed off about big government and, and taxes." I really don't and I came on the air like that next day and so this thing's this thing's gonna go nowhere. It's it's been co opted by the Republicans who now want to distance themselves from it. So the first thing they did was grab onto it because it was a popular movement and now they're like, well we're they're the radical elements of our party. We don't really you know, Boehner is 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 distancing himself like it's a it's a piece of poo on a stick. He doesn't really want to be involved. Well and neither, neither party wants limited government. That's <laughs> and that's that's the problem. That's uh you know, I think the only reason the Tea Party went on the Republican side to begin with was because um, they weren't going to make inroads in the Democratic Party, and, and the Democrats were holding the executive branch at the time. So that's when the Tea Party arose. Um, you know, and the Tea Party, just in terms of its grassroots movement, it's these things are always there. Shit, they were there 25 years ago, whenever it was 20 years ago with Ross Perot. Uh, that that swell of people is still there, but they can be better organized today with the internet. They can bypass the mainstream media. And I think you're going to see people that want limited government trying trying to do it. So so watch, whether it's the Tea Party or whatever it is, the Liberty Movement. Watch that movement. Those people are going to be they're going to have effect on the political outcome. And, and I'll, I'll throw something else out, Jack. It's not only a midterm election big time this year for us, but all over the world there's there's a record number of elections going on for from all the EU countries to you know Brazil, um, even some of the countries that we normally don't think about holding elections, uh, Thailand and. Bangladesh recently, uh, well, Bangladesh just had an election recently here that they boycotted the entire election, which I think was hilarious. The one party knew that the government was so corrupt, the opposition party, they just didn't vote. They said, we're not even going to vote. It's, it's, it's so fraudulent, we're not even going to vote. And to, well, and, you know, uh, do the same thing. Yeah, I, I think that what you're going to see with the midterms is, like I said, I think the Democrats don't have a snowball's chance in hell because you can vilify the Tea Party candidate as being, you know, stopping progress and making the government do nothing. But unlike a national election where you can swing people based on just a simple majority, basically, even at a state level, a House election's different. The people that sent that guy there... Most of the people in that guy's voting district are very happy that he's shutting down government. They they want that so you can show all the people you want to in Philadelphia or Jacksonville, Florida, yelling and screaming about it that are pissed off. But the people that actually elected that guy are going. We don't have a problem with this. This is what we sent that guy there to do. So 
that kind of goes to your next trend, and it's why I'm kind of mentioning it, that I don't think they get what they want at all. And then that leaves a president who is going to act largely wherever he can through executive order and regulatory agencies. Yep, which is and exactly which is what President Obama said this week that he had his his quote was I have a pen and I have a telephone, and he you know he meant by that he can just through executive order and you know sicken the EPA on somebody or OSHA, he can go out and get his policies and and that's been the failure of of our government for and it's not President Obama's fault it's it's been happening. Um, you know, since the day the Constitution was founded, people have figured out ways to get around it. But we we have too strong of an executive branch right now. And when you look at all those non-elected regulatory bureaucrats, that's what's really hampered the, the country for the last 50 years. And, and and President Obama has taken it to new levels. And you're gonna you're gonna that's a trend that's going to continue throughout this year, uh, one way or the other. Because if he He's going to use it to his advantage to to try and win the midterm elections, and then if he loses them, obviously he's going to have to use it more the next two years uh, because he's not going to have his his people in in the Senate. And, and that comes down to things like gun control. It's, it's what it affects people in this audience are um, things like gun control. They know they know they can't. They know the people don't want it. You know, despite the hype that they try and create after a Sandy Hook shooting or a school shooting or whatever. They know the American people don't want it. The Democrats have learned that 20 years ago, and they've been they've been running uh, to be as uh, at least convince their constituency that that uh, they're not going to ban guns because they know they lose at the election box. But they'll do what they can through executive order. And you can even see in this last one on the Sandy Hook thing that the bill that that was sponsored by the Republican Toomey out of Pennsylvania was supposedly a Tea Party guy out of Pennsylvania, supposedly a limited government guy. He was the Republican that signed that that uh, Sandy Hook legislation that bombed. I mean, President Obama was behind it. Uh, he couldn't get enough Democrats to support him, and it bombed. Uh, but it was interesting to see who they had sponsor that bill. Toomey on the right and uh, Senator Manchin from West Virginia on the left uh, as the Democrat. Senator Manchin, if you, people remember back, I don't know, eight years ago or whenever he first ran for Senate, his, his uh, campaign ad to put him over the top was he took a he took a thirty odd six or something a hunting rifle and shot the cap and trade bill with it. I mean that was his ad. It was yeah. a slow motion thing of him shooting the, the cap and trade legislation, saying it wasn't going to go through. I mean he is a gun owner. He's very conservative for a Democrat, and yet he came and signed that bill because they, you know, again they they tell us one thing, but they have their own reasons for wanting us not to have weapons. Well, because the laws won't apply to him anyway. That's 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 the reality. That these guys are fine with making things illegal as long as they can make an exception for themselves. Um, and on that particular thing, what I found interesting on the gun control bill, the 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 Mansion Toomey bill you mentioned, is who voted yes out of the Republican Party. Susan Collins, no surprise, you know, that's this, this uh, typical out of her. Uh, Mark Kirk from Illinois, who was a Republican, but and Pat Toomey, as you mentioned, from uh, Pennsylvania, was a Tea Party candidate, but John McCain. John McCain voted yes on this. Now, he, this is the guy that ran against uh, Obama the first time around. And everybody told me how important it was that we elect him over President Obama and that Second Amendment was a big reason why. And, and, and you know, and my response was, yeah, sure. And then he does this, and, and people still want to have that argument. Yeah, the, the, the fact that John McCain is, a, is opposed to our personal freedoms is, is no surprise. There should be no surprise to anybody. But, uh, but he, you know, he was the Republican standard bearer that year, and 
That's that's why I see that, that and that those are reasons why the Tea Party came to fruition. It was when the Republicans run people like that, and it, it's a shame. You got you got to watch these people. But but so watch so so watch for that. Though watch for more re- regulatory control. Watch for more executive orders and how they impact things. The coal industry right now is a, is a perfect example of that. Uh, the EPA has come down on them hard. Um, they could be they could be exporting much more than they are over to, to China and different places. But uh, President Obama doesn't like coal, and he, yeah. and, he, and he shut them down. And so, well, that was a promise. He said he said they'll be out of business uh, without me passing any laws because they won't be able to afford to do business. You know, he said that before he got elected back in two thousand and seven, two thousand eight. So, so people need to be aware of those things and be aware of how these regulations can affect the way they make their living. Now, energy is your next trend, and it's interesting that while they're shutting down the coal industry. Uh, we're seeing probably the biggest oil and gas boom in the United States I- I- ever, other than the original oil fields. Yeah, and, and you'll see, and, and you did even see President Obama in the last re-election bid take take credit for that, even though he's done everything he can to oppose it. Even though there's, you know, they they still don't let us drill or explore on federal property. And hey, and again, I, I mean, I know that there's big polluters. I know that there's big problems in that industry. I'm not saying that they're perfect and they should be allowed to have carte blanche range to go drill wherever they want to. But what I am saying is there are plenty of energy resources out there, whether they be the renewables, you know, where the, um, the Kennedys don't want the uh, wind energy off, off the, the coast of where they have their vacation home because they don't want to see it, you know, whether it be stuff like that or whether it be uh, drilling for oil off the coast of California. Uh, there's, there's so much energy in this country, and you're seeing it come about uh, where they can't deny it anymore. The, 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 people, that, the people that started fracking is – Fracking has gotten a big play on all this because it's something they can vilify, and for a while they uh, they did a really good job of, of trying to say that it contaminated groundwater and, and created earthquakes and things. And, 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 of course, it probably does in certain circumstances, but apparently it's being done safe enough in, in enough places where it is getting past government regulation and things. But the point I want to make on that, it's not only that, it's horizontal drilling. It's the fact that they have these automated drills that they just don't have to go down anymore, right? They can go down and over. And that's been a, a, a huge part of it as well. And that all comes back to American innovation. You didn't none of none of this this boom in, in energy right now in natural gas and oil. It wasn't created by Exxon Mobil. It wasn't created by Shell. It wasn't created by by British Petroleum. It was done by these small independent wildcatters that for the last and it isn't new. They've been doing this stuff for at least 25 years. They were stuck on these little. Uh, reserves, these little patches of land that they, they had, that's the only thing they could get access to. The, the big boys turned their nose up at it, and they had to figure out a way, how can I make a buck? And that's what they did. They, they went about it the hard way, and they perfected it, and now you're going to see that technology go everywhere. It's, it's big in the U.S. now. It's Recently they talked about opening it up, and uh, the, uh, the Mexican government's uh, not opposed to that anymore. They're going to start bringing that technology in to help their, uh, their decrepit oil system, which, which they nationalized you know, 20 years ago. Um, you're going to see this moving in more into Canada. Uh, the Russians are talking about it. They're even looking to see if they can do it in China. It's a revolution that started here in America because people had the freedom and entrepreneurship to go out and make it happen. Awesome. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, If people want to have the environmental debate about that, that's fine. But I think that when you look at it from an economic and trend standpoint, it, 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 it's one of those things that, again, it's not so much 
at this point, well, what do you think we should be doing? It's an understanding that if you're analyzing trends and figuring out how to prepare yourself and how to capitalize on what's going on, you better look at what's happening and what's going to happen. And you're going to continue to see more than oil, gas coming out of the ground in huge amounts here in this country. And you will start to see natural gas as this project is completed in the Panama Canal, boats going the other way back to China taking gas over there. And it is going to have a dramatic effect on our economy. And I think it's, it will help stave off what I consider to be a major coming economic collapse for longer than would have been otherwise. Oh, it, it, for sure, it's, it's bought us a, at least a generation. I, I think we're going to ride this for at least 30 years. You're going to see it as not only exporting, you're going to see it used more in, in vehicles. I, I'm sure I was in Brazil, I don't know, uh, 10 years ago, and they uh, most of the taxi cabs I was in could, could run either on uh, gasoline, ethanol, or natural gas. I mean, they, they had like a switch they could flip and run on all three of them. You're going to see that become more mainstream. It's going to help our exports. It's going to help the specialty chemical business in the United States. It's going to help manufacturing in the United States, um, which incidentally is going to need more and lower cost labor, which kind of plays back into the immigration trends and things we talked about earlier. Those are all going to be an impact. Um, so it will help the it will help the economy, and I think it's going to save it from from crashing anytime soon. The other thing is people can think about this, and it it it, it goes back to that inflation deflationary thing too. Lower energy costs are going to create deflationary pressures. So even though the federal government's you know debasing our monetary system, lower cost oil is going to is going to make it look more like we're deflating than we're inflating. That could also have an impact on the price of gold. Historically, gold trades at about a 15 times ratio to oil. So uh, the price of a barrel oil times, you know, plus or minus times 15 comes out to about a uh, the, the ounce of gold, uh, U.S. dollar price of gold in ounces. So if you see, you know, if, if you if you see very uh, low prices in oil, and it, it, I've read for years that the Saudi Arabians can pump oil out of the ground for $25 a barrel or less. Okay, so I mean they they've been making a lot of profit on that spread. There's no way they're going to get it out that cheap out of the U.S. with fracking and horizontal drilling, but they can definitely get it out of the ground below $70. So the way gasoline or the way petroleum oil prices fluctuate, you could see $40 a barrel oil someday. You know, it wouldn't stay there forever, but just the way the trends go up and down on supply, we could get down into those low prices again, and you start using that $15 multiple, you can see where, where short-term gold prices could go. And those are the kind of things that you want to buy on the dip. When you see, if you see gold going down to $800 an ounce, that's not the time to unload your gold. That's the time to buy gold. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, we're going to continue to see the effects of this. I think you are way more optimistic than me when you're saying you think it bought us 30 years. I, I think that sooner or later, the reality of the national debt, interest on the national debt, um, and a runaway spending by government hits us in the face. If it's, if it's not 2020-ish by the time we're looking at some sort of major economic shift, possibly a currency rebasement, I'll, I'll be surprised. But I do think it's, it's bought us quite a bit of time. Uh, and I, I think that we better make the most of it. And hopefully you're right and I'm wrong, John. Well, and again, I don't think there's not going to be bumps in the road or major potholes. I mean, I think we can, 
uh, we're in major trouble financially, fiscally. We're in major trouble. Our monetary policy with the Federal Reserve is we're in major trouble. Uh, but I think this game can keep going long enough just because we are such a prosperous country. Um, I, think, I think we are going to see a, a social meltdown before we see a financial meltdown. And depending upon the way the social meltdown goes will determine whether or not we have the financial meltdown. Because it, I really believe if we got the government out of the way and we let people have a, a freer lifestyle and, and make their own uh, sane choices, this country is prosperous enough where where we wouldn't have any issues. I mean, even with a, a $17 trillion national debt, we could grow our way out of that if we cut the government restrictions and we, um, you know, we just got rid of all the baloney, all the, all the crony capitalism. We, we let, the innovation in this country is amazing. I mean, you look at the things that are coming out in just in just this year alone, the biotechnology changes, the the, uh, the cures they're coming up with things for um, some of the cancers like leukemia, um, the, the horizontal and fracking we're talking about is giving us a lower lower cost oil and gas. Uh, I mean, just the overall in, revolution, the internet, which is which is not new by any means, but the way it's allowing us to live our lifestyle so much more efficiently, we could have a fantastic lifestyle. It's it's. It's the, the class warfare and the government restrictions that that have created all these problems. And if we got rid of them, we could get ourselves out of this. So thinking about that, like, so this requires, like, we talked about already that we have people that can't do jobs in this country that don't, that the jobs that are available are outpacing the education. And, it, and part of it, I think, is because the, it, it's not that Americans aren't brilliant. We are. But the cost of education is going exponentially up while the value of that education is going exponentially down. And you can say an education is priceless all you want, but no, we can measure the value of an education. If if the person with the education can't get a freaking job, the education doesn't have much real-world value. And we have kids going out now with you know bachelor's degrees and, frankly, some with master's degrees that are waiting tables. Um, and it's making more and more people start to ask a question, which is, why the hell do I need dorm fees and book fees and uh, have to, to go to a place in a world where people conduct multi-million dollar business deals and presentations on a computer? In a world where I can take one textbook and make a billion copies of it in 30 seconds, why does do I have to go out and spend... $500 on a book that nobody would buy if it wasn't mandated by a university in the first place uh, for a class, which the textbook scam is something we won't get into today, but I believe it's definitely the case. that like You want to make money as a professor, write a textbook and get it specced in. Why do I have to do this? So your next trend is online education. Yeah, free online education. And, and uh, just to step back one second on that, the reason education is, has astronomical pricing and is so ineffective gets back to what we talked about on that inflationary, deflationary cycle. We're seeing all this inflation in education over the last 30 years because of government intervention. The education doesn't need to cost what it does, whether it's kindergarten or whether it's Ph.D. work. It's because of the government subsidies and the government regulation on it, and the Internet's helping us avoid all that. So, again, it's, it's bypassing the... The, edu- the mainstream education system, the establishment elite educational system, if you can find a career path or a way of having your own entrepreneurial business where you can get an education that doesn't require a degree, then the online 
process is is going to make you so much pro, uh, so much uh, more productive and get your education so much faster and better, and you could never do it like you can do it today. And it's everything from you know your your own website, the 13 skills where people are just sharing what they do on there and and recommending things from things from like that to YouTube where you just go on and you want to. You want to figure out how to fix your furnace. You know, my furnace isn't working. The fan doesn't come on. Boom. You, you know, you go to YouTube or Google, you put that in, and you've just taught yourself what, you know, six years ago you had to – there's no way. You could have never had that owner's manual or you could have never had the experience of how to do it yourself. You'd have to call in a repairman. Now you can just learn how to do it yourself. So if you look at things from, uh, again, like informal things like YouTube, but then more formal things like iTunes University, it's all free. You can go to iTunes University Virtually any college course you want to take is on there. Um, they have things like the, the massive open online courses. These are free courses from MIT, Yale, Harvard, Stanford that, that are all part of that, that MOOC, system, uh, MOOC system. Again, this is something where you're not necessarily going to get a degree, but it also doesn't cost you any money, and you can learn the things. If you want to learn electronics, if you want to learn uh, economics, shoot, if you just want to learn freedom, go to the Mises Institute. You can learn all about Austrian economics. You don't have to go to a college anymore. It's all free. It's online. It's, you're able to study at your own pace. You're able to study what works best for you, whether it's auditory, where you want to listen to a podcast while you're driving to work, or whether you want to sit down and you're visual learning, you want to sit down and watch it on a computer screen. Never been a greater time. And again, Jack, this is why I'm optimistic. This is why I think is as bad as things are, we can work ourselves out of it as long as we get out of the system we're in now. We got we got to unplug from the matrix. Yeah, I think that there's there's going to be a lot of things. Number one, you keep saying not get a degree, but I think you're going to see more and more degree programs. They're going to be mostly, if not fully, online. I think you'll see some degree programs that start taking like Bill Wilson's approach to a PDC. They have a major a, 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 a huge piece that would normally be an expensive and time consuming thing online, and then a completion. Uh, for the things that require the higher level of tutelage and, and, and teamwork and things like that. Though a lot can be done with collaborating and, 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 and stuff online anyway, but there, I think there is some value to being shoulder to shoulder with somebody and working in that collaborative environment. So some of that will stick around, but more and more degrees will happen. I think another thing that you're going to start to see happening is, is people start to question, well, if a person wants a, a career in customer freaking service, and people do. And there is a valid career in customer service, including moving into management, regional management layers for larger companies and things like that. Do they need a four-year degree that includes French literature? And the answer is they freaking don't. And they don't need to know calculus, and I don't care who thinks it's important. No, they don't. And I'll tell you who knows it's not important. The, the, the company hiring them knows it's bullshit. And the reason they're hiring people with a degree now and I know this from direct conversations with entrepreneurs doing hiring from my business days. There's so many of them available, and it shows me they can complete what they start. Well, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And I see some schools going being created out of thin air that are going to go out and they're going to say to the largest 20, um, the largest 20, uh, you know, companies that hire customer service type jobs. If you had your own training program for customer service that lasted a year or two years, that, that created the graduate you'd want to talk to, what would it look like? And building that and then saying, we don't care if there's a certificate or a diploma or it's a, we don't care. You take this course. These people have already said they want to talk to you. And I see that happening in every industry that's of any significant size. 
because once the course is developed, the overall cost of administering it is very, very low. And in the end, you can have all the pride you want in the sheepskin, but what people really go to school for, what they're sold on, is a better job. And if you can do that for, you know, a hundred bucks a month versus ten thousand dollars a month, what are you going to do? Especially in this modern world. Oh, absolutely. And, and the reason I'm so down on degrees is I'm talking about that in the current term, the way we think about it, sitting mm-hmm. in the classroom for four or six years. Um, I think that online certification is going to be what's going to happen, and it still allows you collaboration. I mean, that's the beauty of it. You can, even if you're in a niche industry, you can, you can uh, get that hands-on experience because once you learn the uh, the introductory part of it, then you're in contact with a guy in another state or even another country, and, and you're going to go to a, uh, a seminar or a conference, and you're going to meet those people. So I think it's the certification programs that they're going to be able to track you. They're going to be able to understand whether or not you have competency in that area of study. And if you can do it in two weeks or if it takes you three years, they're not going to care. It's the fact that you've made that certification and that you're capable of doing that job, whatever it is, whether it's computer programming or working on electronics or um, you, know, you know, in my case, in, in money management, right, I, I, I manage people's money. No one cares that I have a, a, a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Science and Engineering. No one cares that I have a Master's in Systems Management. People ask me, John, how are you going to make me money? That's yep. what they care about. And who have you done it for? Yeah, yeah. who have who you done, done it for? for? How, how do you, you do, do it? it? How do you make your own money? That, they, they, don't, they don't care if I'm if, – uh, obviously, you have to be legally certified because, because the state and the federal government require that. But in terms of individuals – and that's the same way with an employer. When you go to your employer – he doesn't care if you have a degree. He cares that you can do the job that makes him money. Your employer, and everybody needs to know this. We talk about the minimum wage. You know, that's the other big political football right now is the minimum wage. You know, there's, there's disparity in income, and we need to have a higher minimum wage. Your employer is only going to hire you if he can make at least a five or a ten times multiple on you. you know, if he's paying you $100,000, then he's making $500,000 off of your efforts. That's all he cares about. And, and so he doesn't care what kind of degree you have or anything else, and there's nothing bad about that. That's just he, your employer is making money off your spread. If you were the employer, you'd want to do it the same way. So you need, to, you need to be certified and have these skills where you can carry out services or often make products that, you know, figure out whatever income you want to make and, and multiply that by five if you're going to work for somebody else and say, I got to be able to, if I want to make $50,000, I have to be able to have $250,000 of value that I have. And the, the higher the compensation, the more that's true. If I've got a guy, I've got a construction company, I got a guy that I, that I basically sub out to dig ditches, I might make 20% on him. But if I got a $250,000 guy that I'm basically reselling, I'm going to sell him at a much higher margin. Sure. It's like it's like diamonds, right? I mean, if you're selling diamonds, you're going to get a higher a higher uh, uh, commission on it than if you're if you're selling bread or selling wheat or something. Correct. That's, Correct. So, and that's and that's what people want to do. People want to use these online opportunities to reinvent themselves and to educate yeah. them educate themselves in areas where they can make money. That's the whole point. So they, well, they can generate income. Hey, one thing I want to say about this too, just in terms of we're talking online education, and, and I, I think you're right, more degrees and things are going to go that way. But even for people that want to do a, a, a regular residency at a university, if you're living out in New York State or Pennsylvania or Connecticut or someplace, New Jersey, where you're in state tuition to go to a state school, um, I went to Penn State, I haven't, I haven't looked it up lately, but I'm, I'm sure to go to Penn State it's cost 25000 a year, some astronomical amount, maybe more. And that's just a state, you know, just a state school. We're not talking about MIT. They need to look at other options. Um, 
I know for a fact living out west, you can go to um, like Wyoming or I know Minot North. This is the University of State University of Nebraska. Or I'm sorry, of North Dakota. Minot, North Dakota. You may say, hey, it's cold up there. I don't want to go up there. Well, that's where all the fracking and all the oil boom and stuff is going on up in that area. Minot, North Dakota State University. Out-of-state residency said uh, to, to go there is six thousand dollars a year. So if you want to study whatever, whether you want to study French or you want to study mechanical engineering, I don't know how great of a program they have, but if you can go there and only spend $6,000 a year to learn it versus 25000 at another university, I would send my kids to North Dakota. <laughs> it's just, and that's what I've done with my kids. My, my children, for the most part, uh, paid their own way through school, and they've gone to universities where they got great degrees and it cost them a very small amount of money. And that's the way working summer jobs and saving up on their own, they were able to pay for it themselves because I, I didn't send my kids to uh, Stanford. Okay, John. So one of the things I want to talk about before we move on from this with the online education angle and lower cost of, uh, of learning is that I think what people are failing to realize right now is how much has been held back um, because of cost and because of the fact that you can get a student loan for something or you can use your GI Bill for something um, and, and then students so reliant on those things that unless the institution had the magical blessing of the state, uh, you, you could not get access to those funds. And those artificially increased the, the tuition. But then let's face it, there's hard costs, right? So if I want to start up Jack's University uh, right here in, in Texas, I need a site. I need facilities. I need a, a really inviting environment for students to want to come to if I'm going to compete for their dollars. I need a staff. And I need a staff of educators, but I also need a staff to handle my administration. I need a staff to, you know, sweep floors. I need all of these things. I need insurance because if somebody gets hurt, uh, I've got legal fees. I've got filing. I've got, even if I'm not doing it as an accredited university, if I'm doing it as, you know, a lifestyle university or something like that, first thing I'm just going to say, you can't even use the word university anymore if you're not what we say as a university. So I call it Jack's School of Hard Knocks or whatever. I have all those costs. And to build a solid program that a student can then take out and an employable value, it gets very expensive to run that, right? Whereas, if I actually am smart as an entrepreneur and I talk to the companies that are going to do the hiring, I can now, for a very low cost, go out and contract with good teachers and knowledgeable people and say, I'll tell you what, Joe, you are the most awesome person that, that's, that's known of in the customer service industry, for instance, if that's what I'm doing, or or fixing you know, cars. I don't care what it is. You're the guy that everybody wants to hire. What I will do is if you will create for me a curriculum and teach it on video, on a computer, and I'll provide you everything you need, I will give you $10,000 for, for the rights to that curriculum. And you do it, and yes, it cost me ten grand, but you know what? It's done. I own it. It's mine now. Joe got his ten grand. He's happy. He goes out and buys a car or something. And I have that curriculum. And when I want to upgrade that curriculum, I can go back to Joe and say, some things have changed. I want you to add to it. I want you to expand it. We can reuse some of this. And I can pay him again. But that's all I have to pay him. And I can deliver that to 100,000 students for pennies. And the ability now to create a customized education where when a student says, but can I use my you know, Sally Mae loan or whatever, you go, you know what, kid, it's so cheap. You don't need it. Right? It's $99 a month. 
right? If you can't afford that, get out of here. You don't qualify for my school. And when you start looking at it that way, the way that I think education is going to morph in the future is going to be paradigm shifting, game changing. And I think that over not you know twenty, we're talking about twenty fourteen here. This is a little bit longer term, but I think you'll see an entire industry, a multi billion dollar industry, rocked to its core by this. Oh, I agree. And in fact, what you just described is is being done by a company. That, I mean, I'm familiar with Lynda.com. I don't know if you've ever seen them or not, but they do the online uh, online education for like uh, software applications. If you want to learn how to use uh, a, a word processing program, or you want to learn how to do write something, do Excel or whatever. Yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. You go to Lynda.com, and and she's a she's out of the Silicon Valley world. She's gone to like the best people from whatever industry, right? The guy that knows how to how to do the guy that has the best WordPress system, right? And she has him teach that class. And you you pay that website, you know, whatever thirty bucks a month, and you get unlimited access to whatever you want to learn. It's phenomenal. Those are you know this whole cloud computing. Those are going to be the things, and they're going to come back yep. to they're going to come back to skill and competency and content. I mean, just like your podcast, you have yep. hundred you have a hundred thousand listeners or ninety thousand listeners, whatever, because not because you have a degree. Not because you because I don't have one, so yeah. that, that's already <laughs> out, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, you have one because you do, do, deliver content that people want to hear, and you do it in a quality manner, and you do it on a consistent basis. And well, and this is going to piss one podcast. This is going to piss teachers off, but this is also what's going to happen because I now can make the same teacher available to so many more students. Students are going to start saying, I prefer this teacher to that teacher, and the teacher that's preferred becomes more in demand and better paid. And whether you like it or not, teachers, you're going to end up in the world of merit pay because this concept that every student's going to go to a building every day, including elementary schools and, and, and high schools and middle schools, is going to die. And I believe that the concept that all teachers need to be paid the same and you get a raise every so-and-so months and there's no such thing as merit pay in most of these schools and what have you and all these Cadillac benefit programs will hasten the demise of, of the educational institution. I was at one time really heavily pushing towards we need to revitalize education, we need to change the system, and I'm like, okay, now I feel like this. The system has said we don't want to change, and I'm like, well, then you're going to die. And, and I real I think that people think that's a radical statement, but I'll tell you what: in ten years, the face of education in this country, from kindergarten to to graduate school and everything in between, will be so dramatically different. And there's going to be a lot of teachers, and especially administrators, out of business. They're well, going to be looking for something else to do. You said it's going to piss off teachers. It's going to piss off bad teachers, and it's going to piss off all the administrators. But the good teachers are going to profit from this because they will be able to have their own niche market and they'll be able to use their good teaching skills and they'll be able to use combine that with their area of interest. And that's what motivates them, right? What makes them a good teacher is because they love a particular topic or subject. And um, this actually is going to get into our next subject. So let's, let's jump into this. Yeah, because automation, right? You're automation saying, well, is the next thing on the list. And a lot of people are going to say, oh, automation is going to put everybody out of business. Or, okay, if we go online and we have one great teacher, that one great teacher, everyone's going to go to their course. That's, that's not going to happen. There are over 300 million people in the United States. Everybody has a unique, different personality. Everybody likes and wants unique and different things. So there's not going to be just one teacher that teaches physics and everyone's going to go to their website. There's going to be 
a million teachers that are great teaching teachers, physics. Yep, teaching physics that love physics, and they're going to teach it with their own personal, uh, you know, God-given skills and attributes that make them unique and the passion that they bring to it. And no, they're not going to have 300 million students, but they're going to be able to make a great living having a thousand students. You know, and here's what's going to happen, John. It's going to be just like podcasting. Somebody's going to tune into this podcast today and go, this Jack Spierko is a freaking jerk. I don't like him. Or I even like what he's talking about, but I don't like his delivery. He's not my cup of tea. And they're going to hit the X. And because it doesn't really cost any different, they're going to go find something they like. Likewise, somebody's going to tune in today and go, this John Pugliano guy, this Jack Spierko guy are switched on. I dig this. And they're going to become a long-term listener to the show. Teachers are going to have to compete like that. And, and, and it'll happen naturally. And the truth is that a teacher that I might be like, this guy is freaking boring. The next guy's going to come along and go, I finally get it. This guy's a genius. And what you'll end up with is a matchmaking patterning of teachers. And I also see this happening. More and more people doing the homeschooling thing, using these resources. But yes, lots of times kids struggle with things and the parent can't really make it clear. And they will be what I'll call like contract teachers that will set up a small schoolhouse that can maybe have 20 kids show up and every day a different 20 kids will come in for like a clinic on what they've been working on. And that teacher will be saying, I teach these clinics based on these 10 teachers curriculum that I've put together this way. And this is a, and, and, and parents that would never be able to afford a private education will end up with a privatized education because they can afford that person for one day a week. And the teacher that could never afford to sell their services, you know, to just 20 parents is now selling it to, you know, five times 20 or 100. And that there's like this whole new industry that can happen as long as, you know, the the people in the industry will get a clue and understand you can't just be guaranteed an income for life, which is what I think a lot of teachers expect. I know they're going to be pissed. I'm sorry. It's. This world is going to change whether you like it or not, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right, yeah, and I don't think it's going to work in the system. I think it's going to, it's going to be a new system. We're going to go around it. Um, yeah. And, and, and same thing with the automation part of it. The, the good teachers, the, the good people to do whatever their, whatever their skill is, whatever their ability, they don't need to be afraid of automation or afraid of the information society. They need to embrace it, and they need to figure out how they can use it as a tool just like they'd use any other tool in their trade. How do they use it as a tool to make themselves better and to make the services and products they make better? And so you use it as a, as a multiplier. You use it as a way to increase your efficiency, not to do it. So, again, if you're a school teacher and you're only, you know, you're an elementary school teacher and you're teaching 25 kids and you're the best school teacher there, you're, no matter if you're the school teacher of the year, all the teachers, want, all, the, all the parents want their kids in your class, you're still going to make the same lousy whatever they pay you, $30,000 or $50,000 or in your school district, you know, whatever it is, that's all you're going to make. But if you can go online and you can create your own podcast or YouTube channel or whatever it is, and you can deliver that same message, you, you, can, you can literally make hundreds of thousands of dollars because then you can also have, you know, sell products and services. You're not limited yourself to one school district and 25 kids. And, and that's, that's why it's going to revolutionize education, but just everything. I mean, when you look at um, the big hype last year and the year before that with 3D printers, you know, just on the automation side. And the big hype is drones, right? We hear everything about drones. Amazon's talking about using drones to deliver packages and stuff. I don't think of these things in 3D printing or in terms of drones. I just think of them as the big, the big umbrella of automation. How is automation going to help? Well, is 3D printing 
going to revolutionize every industry? No, it's, it's not. And I think it's, I definitely think it's overhyped. But there are specific industries where it can, it's going to do amazing things. And so if you're a machinist, maybe you're going to have a problem because they can have a machine that do, does it better than you. But you've got to think about things. You're not just a machinist. You're also a design person. Maybe, maybe what you lose on, on your ability to machine a product is now changed because it frees you up. And in your mind, you can design totally new products that can be made on a 3D printer. And, oh, by the way, you can the barriers to entry for you to go from being an employee where somebody employed you as a machinist to now where you can buy your own 3D printer and turn your designs into products, that barrier entry has been lowered and you can go into business for yourself. So people need to think in terms of they don't need to be you know, Luddites saying, oh, technology is bad. They need to say technology is awesome. Technology frees us up. How can yeah, I use it to my advantage? There's this group of people out there, specifically within the millennials generation, that think that this new technology will lead to a world where no one works. No one does anything. We just sit around on our asses and robots self-replicate themselves and all these wonderful things. And you, there's a documentary called We'll Work for Free, and they show all these wonderful things about the future of technology. And, and 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 when they say you know no one will have to do anything, my response is who's going to do all this shit? Who's going to make all of these machines? Who's going to fix them? Who's going to repair them? And even if you got everything to the level that you think we can do, who's going to take it to the next level? Who's going to figure out what we can do next? Who's going to you know when they you know the three D printer is self replicating because it can print another version of itself? Who's going to put it together? Who's going to make it do more? Who's going to make it print something other than a freaking doodad or a knickknack? Right? Who's going to figure out the next media that can be printed? And what I mean is, you know, instead of printing in plastic, who's going to figure out how to make it print in freaking aluminum? Yeah, right? or, yeah. Or, or who? Or, or what they're working on too now, and companies have done it: print, printing cells, you know, printing we, organs. Print, right? Print, who's organ, gonna, print, print a liver, print a print a cornea of an eyeball. I mean, that's who, that's where it's going to go, and it's going to make people's lives better. It's not going to make them worse because now people that were blind are going to be able to see, and people are going to pay for that, and then they're going to be productive because they can see. I mean, it just, it's just, I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, I, yeah. I, I see such good things happening that if people embrace them, um, where, where the bad sides are going to happen is if, if they go out and they pass a $15 minimum wage, uh, what's going to happen is no one's going to be working in fast food, and the automation's going to come in and make everybody's hamburgers for them, and those are the people who are going to lose their jobs. Well, definitely, and I think that, yeah, minimum wage is is, is actually a terrible thing. I, I, I'm trying to stick to trends and not my opinion on a lot of this stuff, but when you look at minimum wage and what it does is it tells me as an employer, if I want to hire someone, I have to pay them a certain wage, and that means that I can't take a person who doesn't know the job and train them. That's what it really tells me. I have to have somebody that can do this job. So the minimum wage job ends up being the job that I can teach you in a day, and then you're stuck at minimum wage. Good luck with that, and you're not going to get any real experience and work your way up at all. And the job that requires you to actually know your job ends up with me hiring a guy from Bangladesh because he can do it. Right, yes, and it's back to what we talked about with the, with the wages. If, if I've got to pay you $10 an hour, then you've got to make me $50 an hour. And yeah. if, you're, if your skill level can only make me $25 an hour, I'm not going to hire you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hire a machine that I don't have to pay benefits yeah. to. And, and what people out there don't get, I know there's people out there from like the, the like the evil, greedy, rich person. Like that's why does he need to make $50 an hour? Because I don't actually make $50 an hour. That's why. 
Um, that's what I need to basically generate with revenue off of that employee. But that employee doesn't cost me ten dollars an hour. That employee, that employee's burden labor rate for me is more like twenty dollars an hour. Then I have to keep a roof over that employee's head in the form of an office. Then I have insurances and all these things that are operational level that aren't directly to that one employee, but get prorated across the entire workforce that I have to deal with. Then I have to fire another guy and hire another guy and deal with the turnover and the loss of that. I have to train that person. The reason I have to make $50 an hour off the $10 an hour employee is so I can actually make about 2 or $3 of real at the end of the road profit off of that person. And if I can't make that, I don't want to, it's too much trouble to me in business. That's, I don't, that's, that's, I don't want to be exactly a the point, right? If, if, I, if I can't make my 5% spread or whatever at the end of the day, I'm not going to go through the aggravation of doing it. Yeah, it's just too expensive for no good reason. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's all it comes and It's too much work. And the people that vilify business owners and bosses and stuff, what's happened is they've been sold the concept that the business owner is the CEO of Exxon. All right. And, and the vast majority of business owners in this country run companies that, that run gross sales of 50000 to $5 million in that range. And even the business owner with the $500 million company is not the Exxon CEO. Right? These are not the multi-billionaires and things like that. And the work that they do for the money that they earn uh, is massive. And you may look at the successful business person and say, their life's pretty easy now. And it may be if they have the ability to, because most of them don't, to kind of shut, pull back once they have that level of success and give the reins to somebody else and, and sit in that ownership position. A lot of them, they're working hard when they're 80 because th that drives what made them successful in the first place. And people have no idea of the work that goes into this, especially the work that goes in when the company's just an idea. Um, I get flack now because, like, you could be doing more. And I don't know who the hell feels this way, but I, I get emails like this. And, you know, you got it easy now and stuff like that I hear because the show's successful. And I'm like, you know, I didn't see you bumping into my ass at 3 a.m. in the morning when I was building this by broadcasting out of my car. And th that is part of the class warfare we were talking about earlier. And people need to understand, if you want people to create new industries, there has to be an upside in it for them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yep. Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, those guys, uh, they made my life easier. I don't care how much money they made. They made my life easier. I couldn't do what I do if I didn't have guys like them creating the technology. And, um, yeah, you know, I have a comfortable life now, but, it, you know, I'm a, I'm a, it took me 30 years to be an overnight success. Yeah, and, yeah. And, I, and I can and I can do the things now easily because it looks easy because I do them. But I've been working on them for thirty years. You know, same with you. You can you can pump out a podcast in an hour or whatever. But but it isn't the average person couldn't do that. It's, it's all the skill and ability and your ability to attract and get good guests and your knowledge and it's everything. I mean that and people it's agreed. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm going to go. We've gone off on a lot of tangents. I'm going to do a real quick one just to be controversial. I'll tell you what. Um, and not looking at it from a, from a religious document, but just looking at it from a, a societal document. If you look at the Ten Commandments, and you can throw out the first nine of them, the Tenth Commandment, which is the only one that really applies to you as a person, because the other commandments are like, don't steal or don't murder, right? They're about other people. The only one that actually talks about you as an individual is you should not covet, right? Don't, don't covet what your neighbor has. Um, and that says a lot. And again, take out the religious context. Just think about a society... You know, 2,000 years ago, put that together, and when they when they wanted to come up with the one thing that they wanted to tell you to do, that that you could control yourself, didn't involve 
uh, you know, keeping the Sabbath day holy or, or not stealing from somebody, it was thou shalt not covet. You know, and that's the problem we have today with the class warfare is everybody wants something for nothing and everybody wants what the other guy has. Well, and that, the, that see, that's the big problem. I think a lot of people don't understand it, it, covetousness, um, especially if they don't come from a religious background. I consider myself completely non-religious today, but I was, you know, raised in a Catholic family with a Catholic school. Uh, covetousness is not wanting a house like your neighbor has. It's wanting his house. And at his expense. At his, at his expense, yeah. At yeah. his expense, right. So that's the problem. Like, it, it's, it's completely fine to look at someone doing better than yourself and say, I want what they have, as long as you don't mean I want what they have in that I want their stuff. I want them to give up what they have so I can have it. Um, that, and that is, that is something that, it, like you said, you could take all of the religious connotations out of it. You could, you can look at that as just a way to build a good society. And if people actually look at the success of others and say, well, good for them, you will move a society along a lot faster. It was, it was amazing to me the vast differences that people had in their reactions when Dorothy quit her job. And, and and said, you know, Jack's got the business running now. I'm going to help him in the business. We don't need a job, either one of us anymore. Or when I quit my job, sold out to my partners, there were people that were like, good for you. That's great. And there were people that were like this. Must be nice. And and, and the few people that actually had the, the audacity to say that directly to me, I'm like, you'll never have it. You'll You'll never have it with that attitude. And I think that when you tell somebody not to be covetous, they think that it's like you're telling them, like, don't don't target what I have. And what you're really saying is if you want it too, you'll never get it that way. Yeah, that's a, and that's the difference between being selfish or acting in self-interest. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. I just think that that's – if I could teach America like ten things, it would be on the list. I guarantee you that you will never have – what others have, as long as you want it at their expense, you'll never get there. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and, that, and that's the reason it's the ten command, the tenth commandment, right? It isn't, um, it, it isn't a commandment there because your neighbor doesn't care, right? If, if you want your neighbor's house, you're not hurting your neighbor. Your neighbor doesn't care. You're hurting yourself because, like you said, you're never going to get it. So that the, if, if you if you have that selfish nature or that uh, trying to get something for nothing. That commandment is there to help you as an individual. It's not to protect your neighbor. The, the ones that protect your neighbors don't kill your neighbor. Don't steal from. Don't your steal, neighbor. right? Yeah, you, because it's, you it's can want my there for yourself. You can want my stuff all you want as long as you don't take it. I don't really care. Right. Like I, because I care about you as an individual, I care because I know it's bad for you to think that way. I know that it will harm you to think that way, and I know you won't get what you want that way. So. Because I actually want you to have what you want, I care. But in the end, I really don't. I, you're not going to hurt me until you take my stuff. You can want it. You can want my, you know, you can want my lifestyle. You can want my car. You can want my house. You can want my little farm. You can want my gun collection. You can want, 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 and you can even want it at my expense. You can want someone else to take it from me and hand it to you. It won't hurt me that you want it, but it will hurt you. Right, and that, and that the, the wanting in a good way is what we call the free market. When you want my house, then you offer me a price more than I want it, than I want it for. You know, if you want my house at at a million dollars, yeah, I'm happy to sell it to you because I don't want it for a million dollars. Or, or you know, that's the creates the competition. You want what I have, so you go out and you create a product or service that's 
that's good that people give you money so you can have what I want. Or, yep. um, you know, again, the, 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 the uh, Microsoft thing, um, Bill Gates, Bill Gates didn't go to work for IBM. Bill Gates created his own software, his own, own way of doing things. Uh, IBM didn't want him to be successful. No. He went out, he went out and made it. And he, he created or helped create that PC revolution, the personal computer revolution that took away from the old big blue, the old, you know, the old mainframe stuff. If, had he not done that, had he not wanted to be, you know, his own IBM or his own Hewlett Packard or whatever, it would have never happened. But he didn't go, go out and do it by imposing a rule or a regulation on, on IBM. He did it by in the free market. And that's, it's the free market part that we have to embrace and we have to get particularly the young people to understand it's not socialism, the, the government or whoever giving you things isn't where your prosperity is going to come from. It's where you going out and getting it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And and for those that are going to keep hampering on the whole gates stole windows from uh, jobs, you guys all that you think that need to look up Commodore Geos and figure out where the whole way that windows is laid out actually, because they both basically ripped off Commodore, but they actually executed better. And that's what made them successful. The, the whole it's my idea thing is, to me, it's very limited thinking. And then to our young people that are constantly now saying, parroting bullshit from 60s socialists, like the free market and capitalism have failed, my response to that is, where do you think an actual free market and, and true capitalism exists today? Because it's all of these things that have been accomplished have been accomplished in spite of socialism and have been accomplished with the remnants of a free market and a, and a capitalist system because there is no capitalist system right now and there is no free market right now. If there was a free market, I could go out tomorrow and directly complete, compete with Monsanto, and I can't. Right. The, the, the crony capitalism system is failing, not, sure. not the free market system. And even people that point to, you know, all the intellectuals, uh, all Sweden, you know, Sweden has a great lifestyle, Sweden this, Sweden that, Sweden socialist. Sweden has a socialist system because they got enough of a free market system to support that socialist system. Sure. If they, if they weren't, if they didn't have their, their timber, their timber industry and their minerals industry and their, you know, specialty machinery industry, they wouldn't be supporting their, Eight million people, or whatever they have in situation, and then add that to it: a relatively small population. Yeah, small, right? small, healthy, very cultured civilization that doesn't take advantage of it. Um, but even that, they've had a lot of problems with it, right? But and again, you put them in a in a, in a part of Europe where they're able; they've got like sixty percent exports or something. The yeah. Swedes, the Swedes aren't buying all that stuff. It's no, it's, a lot of, it, for for. 70 years, a lot of it went to the Soviet Union, where the Soviet Union was so screwed up, they couldn't make their own machinery or their own machine tools. They had to get them in from places like Switzerland, or excuse me, from places like Sweden. Yeah. That, so it was the failure of these other systems that made them where they're at. But, but that's the point. It's, it's, it's just like everything we talk about. Well, we have 72-hour kits because we know that FEMA's not going to get here the day after yeah. the disaster to help us. If you're sitting around waiting on FEMA, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. If you're sitting around waiting for the minimum wage, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Well, it's like now with the – this is what I call the danger of knowing not enough, which is the, the youth has been sold in sound bites and tweets in this day and age. And when you tell them something like socialism doesn't work, the, the, the gold standard now for how awesome a socialist economy can be uh, has become one with lifestyles, the, the Norwegian com countries like Sweden, and then from a pure economic standpoint has become Germany. 
And they say, look at Germany. It's the best economy in the world and what have you. Germany is also seriously, seriously dependent on exports and to the Eurozone. And let's face it, when it comes to the world of Euros, freaking Germany is the banker of the Euro monopoly game, right? If, if I was playing Monopoly with 20 other people, we had a great big Monopoly board, and I was the banker, but not in the way that it works in the game. If it was like I was the banker and I could make more money and I could give it to you if I felt like it, or I could give it to myself. Well, I'm going to do really good until everybody fails, right? But as Europe begins to decline, and it is, you know, Germany's not immune from that, and the weakness of the system in both uh, Sweden and Germany will become very, very apparent. And I'd say that's that's a 2014 trend. You'll see it begin in 2014 as you start to see the economy of Spain become worse, the economy of France become worse, the economies of Italy become worse, and all of them look a lot more like Greece than they do right now. Um, don't think it ain't going to hurt Germany. They, they can print money. They have the biggest control uh, over the Eurozone bank, but in the end, they're subject to the rules of reality too. Oh, I absolutely agree. That, yeah, the whole The whole German... The German propping up the euro is the same as the Chinese buying our debt. They, you know, the Chinese buy our debt so that so that they can sell us their products. Same way with Germany. And I agree. I, I on my trends here too. I I didn't put on some of the things that uh, that were totally related to finance. But you brought up Germany. I'm going to go with you on that too. I although I'm optimistic. Again, I think there's going to be potholes and, and bumps along the way. I think in 2014 we could definitely see some failure again, whether whether it's Italy or or Portugal or one of them, another major currency crisis there, uh, particularly with all the elections going on and the unrest that could really hurt the euro. I mean, those guys are they're talking about they're coming out of the recession, but it's it's all funny money. Uh, the the chi- China's China shenanigans have been going on for 20 years, and I I keep thinking every year they're going to crash, and they don't, but someday. Uh, you know the, the, the property markets is, is a total bubble. Uh, they're totally dependent on, on a lot of cheap exports to us that uh, that aren't sustainable given our debt levels. Any one of those things could could uh, could create another major catastrophe. It could make like 2008 look uh, look mild. Well, and all of this stuff affects us too. I think it's important to understand that um, we look at the Chinese as competitors for American jobs and all, but. Right now, a, a Chinese economic recession will become very, very rapidly a U.S. economic recession. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, and, uh, and a European recession that's coming will create a U.S. recession as well. Well, uh, you, you, Jack, even you talked the other day on your show about, uh, I, I don't know if it was Deutsche Bank or which one of them was. that, that Deutsche had, Bank, yeah. Had $60, 60 trillion in debt or whatever. I, I'm, we don't know where our, where our bailout money went in 2008. We know a lot of it. Now we know a lot of it went overseas, but we don't know specifically where. That's just the point. When when Italy starts to fail, or Portugal, or Spain start to fail, our Federal Reserve is going to come in and give them more of our taxpayer money to bail them out, and that's it's going to be a major crisis for us. And as those dollars repatriate, the the inflation is felt, and I think that's part of how you're seeing the inflation creep in here and there, and you're wondering where it's coming from. And, and it, it's not QE because the QE money is going into the banking system and staying in there. Um, but as a lot of this money that we doled out in 2008, starts to find its way back to our shores, the, the M3 supply uh, and, and even the M2, that's actually the money on the street, so to speak, and the money that's changing hands is beginning to expand, and that creates a, you know, a, a moderate inflation that's only being held back by a continued recession, honestly. Yeah, and, and the hole we dug ourselves, too, is, is uh, I mean, the reason the banks aren't, aren't expanding their 
they're lending and things is because um, they're just they're they're paying off all that bad debt that they incurred over the last 15 years to begin with. I mean, all these all these how Q, all QE really has done, other than it did bring up the equity market, but it but it's it's rebounded the value of the real estate property, which all these banks were sitting on. So a house that a house that they loaned out money for for five hundred thousand dollars in two thousand five is really you know mar- real market value is only worth two fifty two hundred fifty thousand yep. and and they had to take them the last you know six years six years to to get all that property back up to close to where it was because these these banks are all they're all illiquid. Well, they, I think totally most people don't understand what's going on. So the banks have have chopped up and pieced up all these loans into these mortgage backed securities. It's the mortgage-backed security that the Fed's actually buying, pulling it off the bank's balance sheet, and giving the bank money for an asset that's technically worthless. That represents a huge liability because there's not enough value behind the security to cover the face value of the security. That's that's the that's the red value, right? And and, and the reason we're not seeing that the M2 and M3 values expand more, even though the Fed's balance sheet is expanding, is because they're papering over the past expansion, right? Correct. The money's all the money's money's already spent. It's going into a hole, right? right? So if you're looking for a pile because I'm dumping dirt in a place, if there's a hole in that spot, you won't see a pile until the hole's full. And then you see, you know, you, you see uh, a couple tons of dirt go in, and you get a pile that's representative of 500 pounds of dirt. Well, that's because the other 2,500 pounds or so went in the hole. And that's that's part of what we see there. But the other thing we're seeing there is what are the banks doing when they get this money, when they do get the money that actually does come on the top side of the hole, so to speak? They're doing a variety of things with it, but they're not lending it, which is what they're supposed to be doing with it. Uh, in the in the you know in the viewpoint of what the Fed says they're doing this to make happen. One of the things they're doing with it, they're buying their own stock. So they buy their own stock, and it gives the artificial. Uh, 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 illusion that their dividends are increasing because there's less stock in circulation so the dividend is being cut up in small less pieces so the individual dividend goes up that's one thing they're doing with it they're they're increasing their gold reserves because they know the day of reckoning is coming so that doesn't really put the money on the street because they're not buying physical gold they're buying paper gold and all the money's tied up inside these these other assets um, and they're also putting the money straight back into U.S. debt in the form of, you know, U.S. government securities. So a lot of that money that's being dumped in is either going in a hole or being held up in another vehicle, and it takes a long damn time for it to trickle back down and get on the street, where if the banks were doing what the Fed says they're doing with it, which is loaning it out into the real estate market to put that market back into shape, that money hits the street a lot faster and expands a lot faster, where even when they're expanding it now, it does. This is, I guess, the the simplistic way that they try to sell gold to the ignorant. If there's more money, there's less value in the money. That's monetary supply, but monetary supply has to be coupled with monetary velocity. And it, it doesn't matter how much money there is if it's not flowing. So because the velocity of the money is slow, the 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 pinch of the inflation is sl- is tempered. But as a lot of those dams break. And that velocity of money increases, not only will you feel all of the expansion in inflation, but the expansion will will also grow faster. Because once it does hit the ground and it does start getting lended, that's how we expand the supply. So I think it's a velocity issue that's held things in check up till now. Yes, and the same thing with all these, the, the same thing you described for the banks, that's the same thing all the other 
these other equity companies are doing, whether it's, uh, I mean, even, even old school companies like IBM, they haven't had decent profits really in probably 10 years. They keep buying back their own stock. And instead of the old days when they used to split them and it diluted them, now they're buying them back and it's looking like they're getting better earnings. You say, gee, how their, their sales never go up, but they increase earnings 8% every quarter. How does that work? <laughs> they keep, they're not really increasing them. They're, 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 uh, it's, it's a devolution instead of a, a dilution. And, yeah. um, and, and yeah. a day of reckoning is going to come because, again, when, when the banks do let all that money out or when the, when the, holes, when the holes filled and that it's a ground level now, you're going to see it start piling up. And all these companies that have had these financial shenanigans, they're going to try and, you know, uh, it's a hidden reverse split, right? I mean, that's exactly, what it really is. Exactly. So like when a, when a company's totally screwed and they're in danger of being delisted or whatever, they'll reverse split the stock, which is terrible for the shareholder. But in this case, instead of reverse splitting, what they're actually doing is there's so much capital infusion, false capital infusion, they're actually purchasing and decommissioning the shares. So they're doing a reverse split, but they're doing it with a rabbit out of a hat where you don't really see what's going on. And let's kind of, because we've been on a long time, this is a great interview. I think people are going to be stoked about this because of how diverse we're, we're going today. Um, but let's kind of move on to your next trend because all of this nonsense, absolute freaking nonsense in the, in the monetary world is really starting to piss the average person off. And they're starting to realize, because we talked about surveillance, that not only is the money tainted with expenses and costs and all of these things going on it's also being monitored people are who you sent money to and like you're like you know what it's not your business that i bought a freaking pizza yesterday it really isn't so what we've seen in a response to this is a rise of cryptocurrencies like bitcoin we've seen a rise in people privately exchanging precious metals um, we've seen a rise in a barter and an underground economy. You're saying that that alternative currency barter economy trend will continue to grow in 2014. Yes, I think people are going to continue to look for alternative currencies. And, and I think like on something like Bitcoin, I think the jury's still out on how safe it is. Um, I mean, let's face it, because it's an algorithm that, that, that looks good, but we really don't know exactly where it came from, right? We don't know that it can't be cracked or manipulated or it's not even a false flag operation. And there's a lot of conspiracy theories about where that could go. But, but what I'm going to say with Bitcoin is they've, they've proved in the free market, right, they've proved that an alternative currency electronically based will work. And I think there's going to be further innovation from that. It may or may not be Bitcoin, but you're going to see a currency that can conduct Transactions that are, you know, in fractions of a cent, so they don't cost anybody anything. You can you can buy uh, something for a penny, or you can buy something for a thousand dollars, and there's virtually no transaction cost. It's um, totally uh, private. It can be encrypted. Um, that that is going to be the way of the future, and you're going to see those, those things continue to emerge here in 2014. Whether somebody comes up with an idea too of making it not only an electronic side, but they they back it with gold, or like, I wouldn't be surprised if you see some of these you know, these Swiss banks that have been that have been taken to the woodshed because of uh, you know they can't hide Americans' assets there anymore. What's what's going to stop a bank in Switzerland or um, Singapore or something from saying, hey, we've got a vault full of gold, and we're going to have a you know, instead of a Bitcoin, it's a Bitgold transaction or something. And so we're going to back it. Nothing. In we're fact, going to back it on physical gold, but it's going to be private. It's going to be secure, on and on. And, and, and even, I'll tell you what, you can take this to other extremes. Even a company like Walmart. Is a company like Walmart going to get smart and say, rather than 
having our, our customers forced with debt, all this debt on them, and, and, and making them have like a credit card or something, rather than having them be debt-based customers, do we want maybe prosperity-based customers where they can have their direct deposit come into the bank of Walmart, right? And, and Walmart will buy gold or buy silver, and we'll have these shares all over the world in their global company, so it isn't like it's just sitting in one location in Arkansas or something, but they could have gold dispersed throughout the world where they have, you know, your Walmart debit card or whatever, your Walmart, Walmart, Walmart gold card is, is the same way. You know, what you're buying is, is secure. It's, it's based on a hard currency like gold or silver. Uh, there are minimal transaction costs. You're not, you're not worried about fluctuation of the U.S. dollar or inflation. Uh, you, you know, so you know, like if you've got, if it's in silver or something, you know that an ounce of silver today is going to, is going to get you new tires on your car at Walmart, right? You're going on the Walmart yep. service station. Yep. And you know, in five years, an ounce of silver is going to put tires on your car. So yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, I think you're going to, I think Bitcoin is showing people that this can be done. Well, I, well, here's, here's a couple things I love about Bitcoin. Bitcoin number one can be as publicly auditable as you choose or as anonymous as you choose, depending on how it's utilized. Um, it's also open source, which means even if it were a false flag, since it's open source, other people have access to all the code and could develop add-ons to it that even if you built some kind of loophole into it, would circumvent the loophole. For instance, I'm learning about something now called ZeroCoin. Now, unlike, like, there's Litecoin and there's other things that basically just use the Bitcoin um, blockchain and, and work the same way, and they're just a competing currency or a alternative currency uh, within the cryptocurrency world. ZeroCoin's not designed to be standalone. It's designed to work with Bitcoin. And the way it works, like, the simple way to explain it is, let's say I'm sending money to you, Okay. Now, you have a wallet, and I have a wallet. We arrange a transaction, and I transfer the money. The blockchain, you'd be able to look at it and see you know, your wallet and my wallet, but unless somebody told you it belonged to us, you could see that it happened, but it's like having uh, two license plate numbers off of cars but not knowing what state they came from. It, it does you no good whatsoever, and not having access to the database of the DMVs of any of the states. You, you, you really can't find it. But if I... And this is where I think some people in the liberty movement need to be careful with this because they're doing something I think is very, very stupid. They're, they're, you know, they're taking this money in, not paying taxes on it, saying that it's anonymous, but they're publishing their Bitcoin wallet address on their website, say, send money here. Well, I can link that to you now. Right. So the only way to keep it anonymous is to have some kind of a gateway that hides in between. And there's still ways you can sort of kind of figure things out. Well, what ZeroCoin does is when you go to send me money, it takes the Bitcoins and breaks them into ZeroCoins into like a million pieces and sends them all through different places and then reassembles them on the other end. So the zero coin only exists during the transaction, but you're, there's no freaking way that unless you put it, you know, a freaking NSA team on one transaction for a year, you're going to decrypt where it all went and how it got back there. So, and that's just, that's just the next thing, you know, how, like we were talking about the innovation earlier, how many more things will go into this world? So I love that we actually have something now. I don't think it's false flag. And I'll tell you why. Even if it were, this type of thing could be done to it. And I don't think the people in power are stupid enough to give us a weapon this powerful. I really well, and don't. I, and, and I don't think they're smart enough to come up with it either. I don't either because they're too, like they would, like I guarantee you the reason government ignored it for so long was like, this can't work. They didn't know what it was. They, they didn't know what it was. Jack, uh, it, you felt the same way because I know I did. I'm like, this can't work. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I thought about it before I believed it could work. 
you know, we can talk about civil disobedience. We can talk about, um, uh, you know, vote going out and voting the current administration out of power or whatever. We can talk about third parties, all that kind of stuff. The biggest threat by far to the government establishment, the United States government establishment in the last hundred years is alternative currency. Yep. This, this, they're going to do everything they can to fight it, but this could bring them down because an anonymous means of accumulating and, and spending your wealth will totally disrupt their system. Well, and I think what people don't really get is they don't get to charge a fee for it. In the end, the government, sure, they want to tax you and all, but in the end, the way the elite make their money is by selling money in a circulation and by charging a fee every time it moves. That's why you know everybody thinks that the oil companies and the, and the financial elites are opposed to cap and trade. They love the idea well, of cap they, and trade. They, absolutely, they, they, they are so on board with it. They feign resistance just so that they can look like the evil. But the reality is they will make so much money because it will take something that has no value and turn it into a new currency that they can tariff and they can fee every time it moves. The banking industry makes money every time money moves or is loaned, right? They make a profit by the movement of the money. A Bitcoin, when it moves, makes nobody any money. Or if it's going through some sort of payment gateway, it's a fractional fraction of a fraction of a Bitcoin. It's a tenth of a percent of a transaction fee uh, that you're paying for for some added level of security that you don't have to have. Because if you called me up and said, Jack, I don't want to pay on your side. I just want to, uh, I just want to send you a Bitcoin for whatever you're doing. And I said, okay. And I, and I popped over an encrypted email to you and said, send it here. And you sent it to me. There's zero fee of transaction for that to go from me to you. And that is a massive threat. Now, the other thing I love about Bitcoin is it's proven the thing I've been telling people since 2008 that everybody I've been called a socialist, a statist, a greenbacker, you name it, for this stance, which is just basically the truth, that money is not money. Money is an agreement. Money is a psychological contract between members of an economy. Money does not, gold does not derive its true value from the fact that it's gold. It derives its value that it's exchangeable. And as long as we agree that something has value and we agree that it's exchangeable, uh, for items other than direct trade as a third-party stand-in for value, it will be money, and it's worked with things like tally sticks in in, in England, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, or actually thousands of years ago, I believe, uh, and it was a system that lasted for, I think, five centuries. It was just two pieces of wood because the psychological contract was in place. And the truth about money is, and this is the thing that's very hard for people to get because they've been so marketed to by G. Gordon Liddy telling you to buy gold and what have you is, it derives its value from the economy it circulates in. Bitcoins have value because you can you can hire a CPA to do your taxes with your dollars with Bitcoin. Bitcoin has value because there are server companies that will sell you space on a server for Bitcoin. It's the actual commodity that the, that the money circulates as an intermediary for that gives the currency its value. And, and people struggle with that. Yeah, it, it's a demand-based system. You, you you have faith and trust in something that you know that there's a demand for, that when you exchange it, it's just that medium. And you're exactly, exactly right. And that's why, again, I think these these alternative currencies that are not government-controlled, that are that are going to be um, allow people to do things confidentially, it, it hurts the establishment across the board from from Mastercard and Visa and and 
um, you know, Western Express or uh, you know, whoever those guys are that aren't even barely in business anymore, to, to government tax collectors, to everybody. It, it, cha- it puts us back on par to the early days of the government before we had our own currency and people were trading, you know, Spanish gold pieces. Yeah, I think that's another thing people don't realize. The original United States dollar was a Spanish silver coin. Yeah, absolutely, and that's and that's that's what this can become. And you know, and Jack, that I think that's a transition into the next point, which is where li- liberty's breaking out everywhere. I think if we can decouple our currency from our government, if we can decouple our education from our government, if we can decouple our career choices and our career paths from the government. You know, if we can decouple our health care from the government, that's where this true liberty is going to come out. And again, that's why I'm optimistic. If it, if it doesn't work, if we go the other direction where we, we don't have liberty, we're in a lot of trouble and it's going to come quick. But if we can get uh, enough of a tipping point where people are using these new technologies and these new innovations and these new currencies to break themselves free of the establishment and the established government and the corporate system, we're going to see a phenomenal revolution, and, it, and it's going to happen in ways that we, we're clueless about now. We, one thing I put on my notes to you is just even about the Indian reservations, and I know people have kicked that around. Steve Forbes has been kicking around the idea for years, but um, you know, the Indian reservations, to, to the extent that the government lets to get away with it, are, are their own nations. You know, so we talk about you know, going to, you know, having to go to New Zealand or something to, to live in a freer state or something. You know, we might, it may be as close as just going to your nearest Indian reservation. Well, Rob Gray's done that with the the Lakota. Yeah, well, yeah, they, you know, they've done they, banking. Yeah, they, yeah, they've done that with you know with everything from cigarettes to casinos and stuff. Why not put hospitals there? If this Obama thing, Obamacare, just drastically changes the the, the patient uh, doctor relationship. And I and I talk to clients, you know, clients and prospective clients all the time that are doctors. These guys are they're looking at ways to to protect their income and to uh, you know they're they're already mad enough of the way the the uh, the market's affected the way they have to deliver health care, and they're, they know it's going to get worse. What's to stop Indian reservations from, from putting up uh, medical centers, which you go in and you pay cash for, and you get whatever you want. You can get plastic surgery. You can get your knee. You can get, you know, get a new hip put in. You can get, uh, you know, liposuction, whatever whatever you're willing to pay cash for, and, and whether it's a government, FDA-approved drug or process or whatever, who cares if you're on an Indian reservation? How about this? You don't even need an Indian reservation. I'm sitting on a site right now, Cash Medical Clinics of Texas, right? Office visit, 45 bucks. X-ray, $20. Antibiotic shot, 20 bucks. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, I know there's a similar one outside Oklahoma City that's huge that way. And I guess what I'm saying is we can do it now, but we still have the, F, they still have the FDA and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all that kind of stuff. You, you get on an Indian reservation. I mean, you have tourism medical stuff now where you can – you can go get a hip replacement in India, right? They, you, you, yeah. You get a package deal. You fly to India. You stay there for three weeks. You come home, <laughs> and it costs you costs you a third of the amount it, it would in the U.S. Yeah, and you don't wait three months to get in to get it done. The yeah. the other thing, this is what I love about the Indian reservation angle, though. It's almost impossible for our current government to jack with that. Because you do not want to be the politician in this day and age that's going after the Indians. I mean, you, uh, you're you just signing a death warrant to your political career if you're the guy trying to stop an Indian reservation in any way from doing anything as long as they're doing it on their own land. Unless they're sacrificing children or something like that, you better not touch it. I mean, it is. you talk about a political third rail, it's a political fourth rail. 
you're done. You can't, you can't do it. It can't be done um, without committing political suicide. At least I feel that way. But then that's the beauty of it. That's why all these things working together can really be good for the liberty movement because you, you take the Indian reservation and then you couple that with now an alternative currency and then you couple that with technology because a lot of these Indian reservations are in the middle of nowhere. But, hey, if you've got the Internet, if you've got a 3D printer, got all this automation, if you've got online education. Hey, they've been running slot machines for years, so they got electricity, so... Right. Exactly. Right? They're good. Yeah, so, I mean, this, this you're going to see liberty breaking out in these kind of unexpected places, uh, but you just see you just see liberty breaking out now. How, how many women do you know that carry? A lot. A lot. How many, how many, how many, women, how many women 10 years ago did you know that carried? Nowhere near as many as now. now. I can't think of one. I can't think of one woman I knew ten years ago. But uh, I can't. I run a different yeah, circle than you. I that's right. That's right. You, yeah. you know, you know, funner women than I do. <laughs> but I, but I'll tell you, they're they're carrying now. I mean that. Yeah. And again, and you look at industries. Um, just, just the whole thing. I mean, a, a custom holster for women, a custom purse for for carrying. I mean, those are just small things people get is a multi-million dollar niche industry, just the concealed carry purse. Yeah. It's, it's phenomenal. That's what I said. There's, there's opportunities everywhere, and people, are, people are, are exerting their First Amendment rights and their Second Amendment rights, and they're, you know, they're fed up with being spied on. They're fed up with being hassled by the IRS. You're going to see as more people get away with doing things that they should be allowed to do to begin with. I mean, again, recreational marijuana use in, in the next state over from me in, in Denver, over in Colorado. You know, that's that was unheard of 15 years ago. I mean, people talked about it, but no one thought it was ever going to happen. Yep. What's hap- happening now, and as more and more people do it, it's going to happen more. And, 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 Jack, you know me. I mean, I don't even drink. But uh, what do I care if somebody's smoking marijuana? It's none of my you business. don't. Not if you have a brain, you don't. And, and all of the crap about, well, crime goes up, or they're going to be more violent or whatever – Listen, I knew a lot of people in my past that smoked pot, and all they wanted to do was listen to the Grateful Dead, play Tetris, and, and, and eat Twinkies. And I can make a better case for alcohol being dangerous to a, a bystander or a third party than I can for marijuana. I, I'm not advocating that anybody smoke marijuana. I actually don't care at all. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And... Um, in my past, it, did I ever smoke marijuana? Yes. And unlike our lying president, I did inhale. Um, because I think you're pretty dumb if you're going to do a drug and not actually experience it. There's no point then. So um, I, I'm not coming at this from a purist, and I'm also not coming at this from a guy that wants to go get baked every day. You know, that was something I did when I was in my early 20s, and you know, it wasn't frequent, but it was, okay, I experienced that. That's cool. And you know what? I didn't go harm anybody. I didn't hurt anybody. I didn't die. And they have yet to produce the person that died of an overdose of marijuana. It, it doesn't exist. It can't be done. It does unless you eat it or something. And I don't even know if that's possible. You probably puke first. But I can show you people that have died from overdoses of alcohol. So there's no legal basis for this. This is just a um, it's just a demonization of something. And the gateway drug argument is stupid too. You know, most people that use drugs of any serious type started with marijuana most people that use drugs drank water first right yeah well it's like a magazine on, on a on a rifle or a pistol right a uh, a, a 10 round magazine is okay but a 30 is not i mean what yeah what, what has it, a 10 a 10 round magazine is a gateway drug to a bigger magazine <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just it's just ridiculous and and that's why i i, I think this liberty movement is going to is going to continue to to go because people have been pushed so far they can only be pushed so much and and again i don't 
I don't use marijuana. I don't care if someone's using marijuana. If, if they break into, into my home and steal my property to support their marijuana habit, then I want them arrested, not for marijuana. I want them arrested for breaking into my home. If someone has a gun and they use it responsibly, I don't care if they have a gun. If they use it to hold me up and steal my property, then I want them arrested. It's, well, and, and here's the thing. You don't care that they did it for marijuana or they did it because they wanted your money or they did it because they wanted a red car. Right. You care right. That they, so we prosecute the crime. Which is actually the victim relationship. Like, if there's not a, I'm a libertarian, so if there's not a victim, there's not a crime. That, that's how I feel. But here's the thing I, I want to kind of point out, because we got to get this one last one done. We're going to like two hours now. Um, <laughs> but, um, with the liberty movement, I think that we're starting to actually get converts from the, I love government people. And, and I think the reason is they're becoming disenfranchised enough with their belief that government is going to fix things. And I think the reason most of these people like want government to fix it is they can't conceive of a way that anybody else will. And as more and more people demonstrate it, so they look at like you get a person that's like, oh, the government's awesome, and we should have more government, and we should have." But then that person likes Bitcoin, and, and, and you're sitting there going, "Listen, we'll like Bitcoin because it's anonymous. Well, why do you care that it's anonymous? Well, because and it leads them to wait a minute. Government's the reason I care." So I think that you're starting to see more and more of these people, especially, like I said, the young millennial group, the people that put Barack Obama in office, and they, by and large, are the group that was mobilized and got it done, starting to realize, like, it's not magic. There is no, there is no simple solution the government can provide. They're not going to do it anyway. They really don't have it in their interest. And when they're able to look over at liberty people who are actually working for liberty, not the other side of the political spectrum. Right, that, because the, the, as far as I'm concerned, not only have have the Republicans co-opted the concept of the Tea Party, they've concepted the the concept that they're uh, for liberty. They're not. But the real people that are working for liberty today have largely become politically agnostic, and they're out doing things like providing themselves their own food and things like that. And, and you're telling the person that's this this, this pro government person that this is the greedy person that won't share with you, and that person's over there going, "Dude, come to my house and hang out." And it's just like the internet breaking down things where, you know, it's a lot harder for the government to convince you to bomb a foreign nation now when you, your kids are talking to each other on Facebook. And, and I think we're seeing more and more, I think we've got a long way to go with those people, but I think we are beginning to win them over a few at a time as they start to realize, well, I, I, I supported all of the people they told me to, and we won, and now I have to do what this year? I have to pay 1% of my income because I don't have health insurance? I thought I was getting free health insurance. I think there's going to be a lot of those young people this year. A right. lot of those young people. Yeah, what you're describing is what I what I call like the exhaustion theory, and I use that a lot when I'm when I'm tracking stocks and I'm looking as a, as a stock at a high or is at a low. Um, I, I look at the exhaustion part of it. It's when, when a stock is at a high and it's about to break down. It doesn't break down because it doesn't break down because people are smart and they say, oh, the stock's going to break down. I'm going to sell. It stocks it breaks down because of exhaustion. There's no one left to buy it. All the, all the dumb people have already bought it, right? It's already been overhyped. And same way I think we're saying with the government is, you know, all these people that are pro-government people, they're not going to come over to the liberty movement necessarily suddenly because they believe in liberty. It's going to be that they're just exhausted with the current system. They're yeah. exhausted with government. They know it doesn't work. And, and they'll get swept We, we tried that. The it didn't work, right? That's, that's what you're saying. Yeah, they're going to they're come into the liberty system, and then they're going to see the benefits of it. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's exhausting. The, the Soviet Union, we're going to break up like the Soviet Union did. We, we, we weren't as corrupt and as totalitarian, and so they lasted 70 years. 
But so we're going to go on, you know, a little longer. But but when it comes, it's going to become because people are exhausted of the system and they want and they 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 don't know what they want better, but they know the current system isn't working. I think people need to realize too, we can have a breakup without it being a breakup the way that they did, not a complete and total breakup. But we can what we can have is almost a new revolution where states just start to ignore certain like they don't formally leave the union. They leave a part of the union. And what I mean by that is we're not going to do – it's medical marijuana, right? There's still a federal law against it. And, and technically, you could have federal agents showing up in California or Colorado any day to enforce that federal law. But the states ignored that law, and then you're back to your power and numbers thing. Like, well, can you really do anything about it if the states had the program in place for 10 years? Like California's heading for almost 10 years of medical marijuana use. Um, and, there, and there's a, a huge industry there, and everybody uh, in, in the, the state probably knows at least one or two people that you know are doing this and not hurting anybody, and, and then it becomes very hard to move that. Well, that doesn't just apply to marijuana. That applies to firearms. That applies to lots of things where states can just say, you know what, we're, we're not doing that. And I, I think that what the federal government's been able to do up till now is say, well, if you don't, like, just like the, remember the week, the 55 mile an hour speed limit bullshit from the seventies and exactly. Carter had the sign and everybody's going to die and we're going to hold your federal highway funds back. What finally broke the back is a few states just did it and then said, if you hold our funds back, maybe we won't give you our tax dollars. Right, right. And, that, and that, that gets back to the Indian reservation things, where I think we might see some of the Indian reservations start before the states do, is the Indian reservations benefit less from the federal government. You know, they're going to say, what, you're not going to give me that poultry, you know, $700 million of Indian money, you know, that you've been ripping me off on for years? Yeah, well, they, guess I, what? I can, I can make, make yeah, the Navajo Medical Center is going to make us a lot more than that, so we don't really give a shit. We don't, we don't care, right? And it's going to start yeah. there, and then it's going to, and then you know, maybe we'll see these. Maybe we'll go for more than fifty states. Maybe we'll be, uh, you know, what Colorado, do you think about Northern Colorado will break off or Northern California or whatever? I've been to quite a few Indian reservations, and usually there's like that public facing part, but generally they're pretty big pieces of land. A lot of that land is completely undeveloped. I can see a place where maybe an Indian reservation says, you know what, we're doing a housing development and there's going to be no state or county or, you know, taxes or school taxes here because we don't do that. Uh, we're going to charge, you know, $500 a year as a maintenance fee for your neighborhood and you can buy a lot for X dollars and you can build your house here and you can run your business here. We don't have any zoning either. If you want to run a business out of your house, we don't give a shit. Um, and we're just going to develop the, like, a couple thousand acres this way. And when you live here, basically, we're going to put you under the protection of the Sioux Nation or the Lakota Nation or the you know, Navajo Nation. And we're going to stop this closed-door policy, and we're going to realize that we can partake in this. Thank we don't you. just want gambling dollars. We want, we want commerce. We want business. We want innovation. We want your best and brightest to come to us. And, again, do you want to be the congressman that, that, that tries to – to go in and enforce, you know, the white man's will on on the red man. I I hate class warfare, but if you can turn it back around and use it on the people perpetuating it, it's just like in martial arts we train students to take your opponent's energy and channel it back into them. Hey, if that's what works, that's what works. Yep, I I, I think there's I think there's awesome. Uh, Freedom, freedom, re-innovations coming, and I'm, I'm looking forward. I think 2014 is going to, going to see that trend continue, 
and it could make all of our lives better. We just got to figure out how to get behind those things and, and support them. So you think like the, the last trend that we need to cover here before we can move on and, and wrap up is entrepreneurship. And we've, yeah. we've kind of alluded to that all the way through. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, number one thing that I think, and it, again, it's this year. I think you're going to see it more this year because people have been pushed too much. People have been have been pushed out of jobs. There's low uh, employment participation, all that kind of stuff. So I think all those people that, that need jobs are going to wake up and say, I don't need a job. I need, I need a career. I need to direct my own future. But at the same time, again, the, the, the doctors that I talk to that are just fed up with the system, uh, the people that do have a lot of wealth that maybe work for a corporation for a number of years and they, they just see they're not getting ahead there, they're looking at ways to how can they generate their own income. When we, when we think of homesteading, and you know, a lot of people homestead in the prepper community, Homesteading, if you look up the definition of homestead, it's, it's um, the, owning a piece of property that can sustain your, your life, you know, whether it's an acre or 10 acres or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's a piece of property that provides you shelter and food and security, and it's a way to sustain your life. I think this whole entrepreneurship is going to a way of like wealth steading, where people are looking at their wealth and they're saying, how much wealth do I need to sustain my life? Okay, And that, and that may include living on your homestead and growing your own food and things, but it, it just might be how much money do I need to not just live off of that, but live off of the, the interest and the productivity of it. So I'm going to take my whatever, you know, $100,000, and I'm going to start my own business. I'm not going to put it in a bank or something. I'm going to take the 100000 and I'm going to create an income off of it. Or I'm going to take, um, you know, my skills and abilities. Maybe I don't have enough money now, but I do have the skills and abilities to, to write computer software or to, to design permaculture landscapes or whatever it is. And they go out and they put those energies into creating their own income because ultimately being an entrepreneur, that's just, again, that's just about freedom. It's about being able to go into the free market and to provide products and services that people want to buy and you having a, a free exchange with them. And then all these trends we've talked about, I think, are just going to really help facilitate people being an entrepreneur and they're going to be exhausted and worn out by the existing system. And the best way to get away from the existing system is to have your own business. Yeah, and I think that, okay, if we look at an income level for a self-employed person, uh, where you're really kind of comfortable is at about 100000 a year plus. Let's just kind of think about it that way, right? $100,000 a year uh, plus, because there's so many expenses that you, 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 you see are real when you become self-employed. Like, you know, the other half of your Social Security would be one example, and your health insurance would be another example. And I love the people that bitch because they're paying half of their health insurance at work, and I'm like, you should try paying the whole thing. Um, and, and, you know, that cost is going up. But $100,000 a year in, in profit, person does fairly well on in this country at this time. And if you think about what it takes to get there when you're doing it with really little things, so we've built the audience here to 100000 if I wanted to make $100,000 a year and I wanted to do it at just $1 a listener, if I wanted to run a program that was $1 a dollar a listener, um, and I said you can pay me $1 a dollar a listener, and I'm, I would actually go broke trying to do that with 100,000 people if everybody did. And the reason I'd go broke is fees. It cost me $1.44 with PayPal to charge you a dollar, right? Enter Bitcoin. So now a blogger, with a huge audience that could get everybody to send him $1 worth of Bitcoin a year, which most people, if they value anything, would pay a dollar for it, if you make it easy, could now become a $100,000 a year earner by getting a dollar from 100,000 people. And, and that, that dollar from 100,000 people or $1 from a million people is an old entrepreneur lesson 
that you've probably heard it in your life. But the truth is, until now, it wasn't possible. It was logistically impossible. When we look at alternative currencies, we actually take the impossible and make it not just possible, but probable. Right. The currencies, the 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 the, the access, the uh, the World Wide Web, the all the automation that lets us do and communicate and make things. We talked about that school teacher. Can you be a school teacher to find a hundred people to teach at a thousand dollars a year? Absolutely. I think I think you could easily find a hundred students. Not only, first of all, you've just limited yourself to the United States. There's three over 300 million people here. Could you not find 100 people in 300,000 that are willing to pay you $1,000 a year for you to teach them something or their children something? I think so. I mean, what, sure. Uh, you know, look what people pay to have their kids taught to learn the piano or to play soccer or to play hockey. If you have a good program that's going to en- en- uh, enhance the life of a child or a a human being, they're going to pay to learn how to do it. And you're not limited yourself to 100 people, and you're not limited yourself to you know, charge a 1,000. But again, to your point, if you charge everybody a penny, you know, can, yeah. can, can you not get a million viewers on a, on a website? Absolutely. Well, you know, a, pe- a penny and a million viewers, that starts to add up pretty quick. Yeah, and there's, there's places where you're starting to see inklings of these alternative systems of value come in. There's a website called Empire Avenue, which is like a virtual stock market for social media. And right now, the only people that really make money on it are the people that run the site. But, you know, companies and like mine end up with values of like 50 million EVs. That might be worth five bucks. It might be worth 50 cents. It might be worth $500. I don't know um, what it will be worth tomorrow. But as there are these systems that start to – and basically the way you gain EVs on Empire Avenue is through doing what you're supposed to do anyway, sharing information. So if you start to look at a place where people start to value the information that's shared and people start, in an essence, the one way to think about it is almost like tithing to an individual. Like you've given me a piece of information of value. I don't have information of equal value for you right now, so I'll reciprocate with something of value in another way. And a lot of these cryptocurrencies start enabling that. And um, I might go off into a world of spirituality here that some people will be uncomfortable with, but there's a book that made huge inroads in the 90s called The Selstein Prophecy. One of the concepts in that book, one of the insights in that book, is that that's exactly what would happen, that people would begin to exchange value for information in a in a not the way you think of today, like info marketing, just like I meet you, and I'm like, dude, can you tell me how to get down the road? And you tell me, and I'm like, yeah, here's, here's some money. And it sounds preposterous, right? Because, you know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like, I would do that for free anyway. I would help somebody. And, you know, money has all these connotations to it. But we, you move into a world of, of, a, of a cryptocurrency that can be fractionalized infinitely almost. That actually starts to make sense that that could happen, and maybe not the way the author envisioned, because I think he is a little too pie in the sky, but in a virtual world, it starts to become very, very probable that when I shortcut a month of research to run a Google search, find your website, get a piece of information that was very critical to me, and there's a thing there that's this tip jar, I'd be like, oh, that's easy, here, here's a dime. Right, and, and those times add the hell up. Right, and that's exactly where I was going to take it. I totally agree with you, and it, and it is no more than an extension of tipping. You know, if you're if you're traveling, you go to the airport, you walk into Starbucks, and you want to grab a, 
uh, a lot of people, you try, you drink, uh, I think Americanas, right? That's your yeah, yeah. Bird drink. You're, you're gonna, you could take that Americana, you take your change, and you put it in the tip cup for that that barista there. You're never gonna see her again. You know, it's not a place where you're coming back, and it's the airport. You didn't do that because you felt an obligation, or because the next time you're gonna get better service or whatever. You did it because you like the service you got. Correct. And it's going to Correct. be the same thing. Like you see, these alternative currencies, the, the low or no transaction costs are going to make things valuable. I listen to your podcast. I say, hey, that's great, man. I'm, I'm going to throw him 25 cents today or whatever. It, yeah. It, it yeah. adds up, and, and it's, going to, it's going to expand to – And I see it being a new – honestly, as an entrepreneur, I see it being a new business unit for me. There are people that will never join the members' brigade. They're just – they don't like a recurring charge. They don't – they're international listeners that don't get the value of most of my discounts. Or they just don't like that program. But they might say at the end of today, well, yeah, I thought today's show was worth the two dimes, he says, the MSB cost. I didn't think yesterday's was, but today's was. And next day's was, too, so here's 40 cents. And I can't do that with a merchant account. I cannot let a person – again, it will cost me money to take your 40 cents. But with Bitcoin, I can. Right. With Bitcoin, I can. You know? And we can also do it in a way that no one needs to know about it but us, which I'm not saying I'm trying to be nefarious with taxes or anything, but frankly, who gives me money is nobody's business but that person in mine. I'm not even so much worried about the tax applications of it. In my line of work, I pay every penny I am required to pay because I'm too, I'm too much of a target if I don't. But I still don't think the government needs to know that you, John Pogliano, sent me 50 cents yesterday. I just don't think they need to know. Right, right. And it gets back to that tip thing, too. If you have 75-cent change that you throw in it into a, a tip jar, that's, again, that's something no one needs to know you did that. You don't even need to know you did that, right? You just hit no. change in your pocket, you throw it in. No, we're gone. back to a biblical principle, again, of not letting your right hand know what your left hand is giving or right. something just, to that you effect. Just, you just do it. And the other thing where I think that, that ties into the whole entrepreneurship is Americans are very generous giving people. You know, if yes. you look you look the way you compare us to people in Italy or different countries, and it's not that we're better than anybody else. It's be, it's it's for the most part we have more freedom than a lot of these other people. We do have more of a free enterprise system, and so we're we know the benefit of giving, and we we have it to give. Right? If if the government's taxing you eighty percent of your money, you're not going to help your neighbor. You're going to say, hey, I'm only living off of my twenty percent. Go down the government; they take all my money. You know that's but but if you're if you're very lightly taxed and your neighbor needs something you're going to go over and freely give of what you have because you're going to be like you know I'm going to help this guy out you know well, there's they're not on somebody else thing. to go do it. There's a gratitude thing there too that I keep saying the government has destroyed. So what I mean by that is if we had a group of people, a hundred of us, you're in it, I'm in it, and you come on hard luck, your business does poorly for a couple months, and you're like, dude, I'm gonna lose my house. And I'm like, I can't pay your house bill, but here's 50 bucks. And another person throws in 10 bucks. And another person throws in five. And next thing you know, we've, we've raised a house payment for you. And you get your house payment made that month. You get your business back on track. You get back on your feet. There is a massive sense of both gratitude and obligation on your part. And there's actually a massive sense of gratitude on my part that I was able to help you. Like, I'm actually grateful that I was able to help you by my own choice. And I'm grateful that you're now part of our group standing on your feet again. And that you're there for me in the future, and there's this, this massive gratitude between the members of a group like that. What the government does is they take my money at the point of a gun and give it to you, and you don't know me and I don't know you, and they make us hate each other. 
Yep, they, they turn gratitude. They turn gratitude for doing into, it, right? They turn gratitude into entitlement. Yep, and they, they turn gratitude into resentment. Yes, yeah, right. because because I'm entitled to that now, and it, and it isn't enough. You only gave me one month yeah. for my home payment. Yeah. I need six. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You won't be on 99 weeks of unemployment in our group of 100 people because the other 99 people are gonna be like, dude, maybe you're not cut out for this. You need to do something else, or you might even get to the point of, all right, look, you couldn't find a job this month. I understand that. You know what, dude? I'm willing to give you another 20 bucks this month. But you know what? My backyard's full of friggin' leaves. I don't want to rake them. So right, right, you're right. over here. Rake my leaves, and I'll give you 20 bucks. Right, or, or it's self-policing, because no, no one's going to give you any money anymore. They're going to say, dude, sell your house, man. Downside. We're going to talk so, to each other, too. We're all, you're going to be like, you know, John's asking for more money this month, and I'm going to be like, he asked me, and I told him he could come over and rake my leaves, and he said he didn't want to do it, and the other guy's going to be like, oh, really? Right? So it, it is self-policing, but you know what? It does. It won't. It won't happen, because you would know it is perfectly unreasonable for you to live off the group for that long if you know the other members of the group. Because the government's created the illusion of infinite money and rich people that they're taking the money from, which they're not. They're, they're actually giving my money to both the poor people and the real rich, right? Because they've created that illusion, you feel like you're entitled to it. Right. So, hey, man, we're at two hours, 20-odd minutes. Let's uh, let's wrap up here. This is like I think this might be the longest interview uh, that, that Paul Wheaton was not involved with I've ever done. Uh, it was <laughs> awesome. But what is your advice for people overall in 2014 in, in prospering? Hey, I tell people as we've looked at the trends today, they just need to go out and look at their situational awareness, find out what's happening in their lives, figure out how to, don't complain about it, don't try and fix things they can't change. Just see what's happening, understand how they can adapt and profit to it. And then that number one thing, let's go out and, and become entrepreneurs and find our own liberty and, and use that so you can help yourself, you can help your family, you can help your community. Well, hey, John, man, thanks for being with us today. I appreciate you. My pleasure, Jack. Thank you. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with John Pugliano, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolution 